Hello, Steve. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I. This is weird. I don't know why the uh, the audio is coming in on my Bluetooth speaker in another room. I hear it fine, but it's strange. It's coming over there. Oh, Let okay. Me see what I, see if I can solve that problem. That, it's kind of uh, like a. Oh, I see. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Oh, go ahead. Okay, so now I'm on the correct speaker. Yes. Okay. Actually, you said it was much more impressive than the. On the on the stereo system in the other room with surround sound, it was like it was like being interviewed by uh, um, uh, you know, uh, God. Now you're now you're down now you're down to earth. Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve, these folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. As part of our series on video game adaptations, I spoke to Steven D'Souza, writer and director of Street Fighter, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. After Super Mario Bros. and Double Dragon, Street Fighter was the third video game adaptation to be released in the 90s, and unlike its predecessors, it actually turned a healthy profit. In our interview, Stephen talks about several of the problems that plagued the production of Street Fighter, like co-star Raul Julia's failing health, which meant that the shooting schedule needed to be rearranged, which in turn meant that there was not enough time to work on the choreography of several fight scenes. And he also talks about the impact of the negative reviews the movie received. Stephen, who is probably the fastest-talking screenwriter in Hollywood, also shares with us tons of funny, absurd and insightful stories on several of the other movies he's worked on, like Die Hard 1 and 2, Hudson Hawk, Ricochet, the Tomb Raider movies and the Schwarzenegger film Commando. He explains why he considers himself to be a PhD candidate when it comes to the Flintstones and how he was once offered to direct a film that was described as Die Hard in a Building. For more on the video game movies of the 90s, please check out our other interviews here on Talking Pictures, including an interview with Rocky Morton, co-director of Super Mario Bros., an interview with Jim Yukic, director of Double Dragon, and with Kevin Droney, the screenwriter of Mortal Kombat and Wing Commander. If you speak German, there's also episode number 38 of our Lichtspielplatz podcast with in-depth discussions of all these movies. You can find us at talkingpicturespodcast.com. So here's Talking Pictures with Stephen D'Souza. Yeah, hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. That's quite a collection you've got back there. Oh, uh, yeah, that's just a part of it. Um, uh-huh. I, I have a huge movie and music collection, actually. <laughs> uh-huh. Did you ever... Um... Did you did you did you have a lot of uh, investment in now obsolete uh, media? Did you ever make that mistake? <laughs> well, I, I I like old media, so I don't think of it as a mistake. But yeah, I mean, I have lots of cassettes and lots of you know old computers and everything. Uh, so I went cra- I went crazy with laserdiscs when they were out. Mm. I was like out of my mind. There was a store here in uh, in town called Dave's Laser, which the, and. Uh, the uh, a lot of uh, people who've gone on to be in show business uh, work behind the counter there, but they used to tell me that I was uh, neck and neck in an ongoing race between uh, Tarantino, Rennie Harlan, and uh, James Cameron. They basically, bought every damn laser disc that came out, <laughs> and then when the laser discs were like all over, mm-hmm. and like they weren't even making any more laser disc machines, like you got to find some kind of like guy in a basement who can still fix it. 
So I figured, all right, I'm, I'm going to probably, I'm going to start getting rid of this collection. I'll just keep a handful. And uh, I had a an, an intern in my office. I said, here, make an inventory of these, and we'll put it on eBay. And after a couple of days, he says, you realize that almost that, that most of these were never even opened? Yeah. Like, I'd go in the store, and they'd say, uh, new restored version of whatever, added scenes, and it was still in the, saran- in the um, c- cellophane. But I just had to have it. Mm. So... <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but now, now everybody, now people are, I don't know about this, people are starting to like just wean themselves of physical media and there's stuff that's not available streaming. So, uh, mm. uh, it, it still might be a good idea to build up a, uh, a library of, uh, uh, especially stuff that's not, that's older yeah. and foreign. I mean, foreign to me, not to you, but, uh, but <laughs> yeah, the European and Asian, you know, uh, these are not all, always streaming. Yeah. A lot of movies are disappearing. Um, I mean, I have a lot of movies still on VHS tapes because they are not yeah. available on any other medium. Yeah. So, yeah. For for a little while, we thought that, uh, you know, streaming services would actually open up the library so you could watch any movie you want at any yeah, time yeah. you want. But um, as a matter of fact, it's just, you know, gotten very narrow in terms of the well, selection. Criter- do you have the Criterion collection? Do you have the Criterion streaming service? Do you uh, have no. that in Europe? No, that's not available in... in uh... That's here. That's great. That's a terrific service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got that. And that has a wonderful curation, uh, a lot of great titles, and they have a nice mm-hmm. rotation. Um, and uh, if you can get a, uh, what is it called, a VDP? Can, mm-hmm. What's the thing that uh, where you can pretend you're in another country? Yeah, VPN. VPN, sorry. Yeah. yeah, can you get a VPN and watch and get, a, get an American uh, streaming service? Mm, I think that could work, yeah. I think a friend of mine is doing that. something like but that. You know the Criterion, you know the Criterion collection. Mm, absolutely, all the yeah. Old films and all that stuff. Anyway, see if you can find a way to uh, to include that mm-hmm. and uh, watch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll try that. Yeah, I always envy you guys for the Criterion collection. I mean, that's a sort of a, a, a cinephile's dream come true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we don't have anything like that. I mean, well, we do they have. Took over, they took over for one last year. That that that. that closed but that people were heartbroken i forget the name of it um what the hell was i had it and then warner brothers bought it and shut it down mm-hmm. uh, and so this one came up in its place and they got a hold of the mailing list and they contacted all the people that were on the the service that had been shuttered and said mm-hmm. you know come on over here so i think i signed up for the uh i think i signed up for like a two-year program and they and you get like a, they send me a uh like a metal uh, a metal key fob here see it says oh, okay see, with your name on it, charter subscriber. Oh, that's a VIP charter status, huh? <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, I gotta put it on my keychain or something. You can kill somebody with this, it's like <laughs> it's metal. All right, and that's a good segue killing people with weird moves and stuff. That's a good segue yeah, to our absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's a brilliant transition. <laughs> um, yeah, Street Fighter, a movie about killing people, a movie about people beating up each other. Um, Before I get into the process of of like what the adaptation of of the the film was like, um, I'd first like to know, how did you get involved in the first place um, as a writer and then as a director? Because that was your first uh, studio picture as a director. Um, Yeah, I had previously done an independent film, which was kind of like uh, many in in my youth, um, I did a film that was like a Cheech and Chong movie before Cheech and Chong called mm-hmm. uh, Arnold's Wrecking Company, 
which you can find in obscure corners of the web streaming. Um, and then I directed some television. I directed Tales from the Crypt, most famous, most famously. Um, I, an episode that uh, if you go to if you go on the internet and look at people's lists, it's usually in everyone's top ten list and often top five. It was an episode with Colin McLaughlin mm -hmm. uh, as an escape bank robber in the desert. I don't know if you've seen it uh, mm -hmm. or not, but it, uh, um, and so uh, and for a while I had um, as I worked my way up the food chain in Hollywood from. Uh, uh, I started out in television when I came here, as you know, um, and um, once I got to the position of being a producer in, in network television and a showrunner, typically I'd get hired on a show and they'd say, all right, we want you to be the executive producer. Uh, we want you to write uh, four episodes of the 22 and supervise everyone else. And I would say, I also want to direct two episodes. And they'd say, fine. And I did this a number of times. And, and what would happen is, uh, you start out in the spring making your television programs for the fall, and the first episode you're filming, it's like, you know, um, you know, it's four or five months away from airing. But it takes 10 days to make a television episode, so you lose three days every episode, every week. So what would invariably happen is we'd get, we, we, as we'd sort of march towards uh, through the season, through the episodes, is I would realize that, you know, we're falling behind, the star got sick, uh, we had the rain, an episode slipped, and I could not, as a supervisor uh, involved in casting uh, every episode, in uh, working with all the other writers and hiring directors, I, I could not withdraw myself from that pipeline for um, almost three weeks to make an episode. Mm -hmm. Because there's a few days prep, and, you know, so I was, all right, I'm not going to direct. So I had all these opportunities to direct, and I kept, like, kicking to the curb. So anyway, uh, how I got into this was um, uh, in the world of uh, television uh, that I was working in, I had an opportunity uh, to do an an some animation. I had somebody that said, uh, you know, the shows that you've been, I had done all these eight o'clock shows like uh, The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman. And uh, by the time of the 90s, this kind of content was gravitating to uh, animation, uh, the more uh, kid-friendly stuff. Uh, so I had a meeting at a network, and they said, we want to work with you. Have you thought about animation? And that was my child. My childhood fantasy was I would be an animator, actually. Mm -hmm. I thought I would work for Disney Studios someday. Uh, so, I, so, so I found this property, uh, which was called uh, uh, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, uh, which mm -hmm. um, was a comic book uh, that was uh, um, an Eisner Award-winning comic book, you know what that is. And mm -hmm. uh, it uh, had a very kind of retro look, and I liked it a lot. So um, the uh, and the comic book was brought to my attention by this uh, producer, uh, and I ended up um, providing some notes on the uh, coin-operated uh, game for Capcom, and then I completely produced, uh, in conjunction with the comic book, uh, a, a home video uh, um, game of Cadillacs and Dinosaurs for the now-forgotten Sega system that was like mm -hmm. a CD if you know that system. Mm -hmm. So that was that my encounter with Capcom, how I knew the Capcom and the Capcom people. So um, uh, Ed Pressman, a producer that I knew and been friendly with but had not worked with, uh, he called me up out of the blue and said, listen, I know you know the Capcom people. Your, your, your cartoon producer um, uh, was in here the other day, and he's alerted me um, to the fact that they want to make a movie of Street Fighter. Do you know it? And I said, do I know it? Like every weekend I'm getting, you know, I'm like, I'm my, I, my, my uh, son and I, he was like, uh, I guess, uh, a, a teenager at the time, 12 years old, whatever, 
uh, we ride our bikes to the arcade, and I'm giving him quarters. I'm familiar with the game. I'm I'm lousy at it, but I'm sure, but sure, I know it. And he said, well, they're coming to town. They want to make a deal for a motion picture, and they're meeting with everybody, and they're taking pitches. Uh, they're going to be here, and I'm sorry about this short notice, but they're going to be here tomorrow. Uh, do you think you could have a pitch for them tomorrow? So I go, um, yeah, um, if it's late in the day, if it's the latest possible in the day, uh, I, I could do it. But uh, I'll tell you right now, if I do this, I want to direct it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he said, all right, that's fine. We'll do that. So um, uh, I uh, just put some thought into it. And by this time, we had had a bunch of low-budget movies about um, you know, fighting contests. And there had been a couple that, that you know, sort of broke through, like uh, um, Van Damme's, you know, uh, picture, Death Sport, or not Death Sport, uh, Death, Death, what was it? Bloodsport. Uh, Bloodsport, yeah. yeah. Uh, but most of them are considered kind of B-movies. And I was told up front that they wanted this to be a major motion picture. They wanted to get stars, and they wanted it to be PG. This is what I was told up front. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, I don't know how you make the PG movie of that and satisfy that audience. So, um, and I noticed in some research that in Japan they they already had they already had action figures. They had the collectible dolls. They had some action figures. They had a toy line in Japan. In America, they just had the very large uh, um, uh, collectibles. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm, so I said, you know what? This reminds me of GI Joe. I'm gonna like think along the lines of the GI Joe movie and uh, not do a tournament. Because in general, sports movies, and I'm, right now, the people that made um, Ford versus Ferrari, w- w- mm. which is what it's called in, in America, I don't know what it's called in Europe. Um, yeah, I think it's actually called the same. Uh, no, it's oh. called Le Mans. It's called Le Mans 66, actually, yeah. here. Well, it, it, apparently, there's an EU rule that you can't use a brand in a title, right? Mm. It's, it, it's like, like it's some kind of advertising rule. So Ford versus Ferrari is like commercial. Because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. two brand names, so that's why they were there for anyway. But um, even the people making that movie, if you look at interviews with them right now, they're saying if a movie about uh, any kind of sports movie that's just about the sport doesn't work, because yeah. it's completely predictable. So this Ford versus Ferrari is a very successful movie. Tom Cruise made a movie, one of his few movies that weren't successful, just broke even, was The Days of Thunder, because mm-hmm. when he's in an accident, like 45 minutes in, you go, oh my. Will Tom Cruise recover to win at the end? It, so, I, so I said, you know what? That's so I, I'm going to go this route. So I go in and I pitch essentially the, a version of the story you see. And um, the people in the room, I discovered later some of them could speak English, but in the, in the first <laughs> meeting, they pretended they were relying on the interpreter. They br- <laughs> uh, when, I, when I pitched it, they got visibly excited. Uh, and I noticed that as I was speaking, some of them were getting excited. Oh, this guy speaks English. And then after I pitched, they showed me materials they brought, which were uncannily along the lines of what I had pitched. Mm-hmm. There was a big uh, drawing. This, this is all going to be in a book that was about to be published in Japan. So there was Bison with a James Bond kind of underground base in a volcano. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were vehicles. There were street battles. It wasn't all in the ring. Um, so that's how I got the job. Mm-hmm. Did the idea of, of adapting a video game into a movie strike you as strange at that time? Because it's something that it had only been done once before Street Fighter, and that was the Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, yeah, well, actually, I was familiar with that. I was familiar with the game, of course. My kids had the game, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that movie was a complete, you know, train wreck. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, it seemed like 
uh, you know, they had, you know, changed it, but there was sort of no logic. It's like, if you look in, you know, like you remember Carl Sagan had the, um, years ago on the show, Cosmos, uh, the main title was Evolution. There's like hmm. an amoeba and a fish crawls out of the sea and then it's a lizard and then it's a monkey, you know, but this was like the fish crawls out of the sea and then it's a chicken. You know what I mean? It was like the evolution of how Mario Brothers became what it became was like insane. It's like they they just sort of took random. They said, "Well, we can't just make people jumping on mushrooms, so let's just go randomly." Mm. You know, so um, uh, so I, 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 to me that was a failure to to adapt the material. Now you have to realize that I was well aware. I have a whole secret life you may not may or may not be aware of where I started out doing. Uh, Film essays and criticism. Uh, I wrote for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, mm -hmm. uh, for Sight and Sound a couple of times. You know, so I have some sense of film history, and I know that, like for example, um, it's a Wonderful Life, famous mm -hmm. movie, is adapted yeah. from a greeting card. <laughs> really? Yes. There was a greeting <laughs> card. No, it was, a, it was the kind of greeting card that has pages, mm -hmm. like it's a long. You know, so it was like a, it was like a, like a little short story in a greeting card. Mm -hmm. About a guy who thought he, what if he had never been born? Mm -hmm. uh, and so Frank Copper got that greeting card. He goes, wow, this could be a movie. There's been movies many times made from songs. There's one right now that failed last Christmas, but it's totally inspired mm -hmm. by the song last Christmas. So, um, you know, Broadway shows short stories. Short stories have a tremendous history of becoming. Uh, so it seems to me that, you know, I had no prejudice uh, that uh, or fear that this could not be. Uh, mm -hmm. adapt. I was confident. And also I had done many adaptations already. Um, so, for example, um, I had done The Running Man was an adaptation of, mm -hmm. uh, of a novel. Uh, Die Hard was an adaptation of a novel. Uh, I had already done this Flintstone script. It, 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 uh, uh, it was just, a, it, it, it came out the following year. Uh, mm -hmm. I had already written the script. And so in all of those cases, uh, I looked at the source material and said, how do I make this work? So in the case of, of, um, uh, die Hard, in the book, the guy's a retired cop, and his daughter's in the building, and you go, well, that doesn't work. Mm. You want to get the counter actor. Um, and uh, also, their terrorists, it was the uh, Biter Minkoff gang, right, which by the time mm. the movie was made, the book had been written in the 70s, that's like forgotten, unknown in America, and so after c c discussing that problem with the director, he said, let's make them thieves, it's more fun. Mm. Uh, you know, and in the book, the, just like the original River Kwai, in the book, the building doesn't blow up, but in the movie, it, 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 it has to. Um, and most importantly, um, uh, in the book, uh, the, uh, the villains are, uh, it takes all night because the villains are searching every floor of the building for the evidence. They actually have a legitimate uh, political complaint. There's a moment in the early in the movie where Rickman says, uh, there's a big model, ah, the models I have loved to make when I was a child. Uh, and later on, uh, Fikagi, is this about that project in Indonesia? Hmm. That's a freaking job, but in the book it was the Indonesian project project that it was crooked. Oh, and I see. Okay, and it was displacing um, uh, indigenous people, and it was a racket. So they're looking for the evidence to expose the company. But in the movie, people looking filing cap. So that's why I invented. It's not in the book. This crazy safe that has all these multiple locks, mm -hmm. which makes no sense. People, no one has ever come up to me and said I didn't believe that safe. But mm -hmm. say there's a there's a there's a fiber optic wire from that building under the ground across the Pacific Ocean to Tokyo. <laughs> I mean, nobody ever said, what are you, where did you get that from? 
the running. Uh, so uh, you, so you, you, you like it's what works for the material on the Running Man in the in the book, uh, which takes place in the year 2019, which is pretty crazy. Although oh. uh, no, the book was a little later. The movie 2019. Uh, in the book, there's such a worldwide depression that the hero can't get work. Now you cast Arnold Schwarzenegger. You say, I think this guy can get work in a depression. Maybe delivering, maybe selling pianos door to door, delivering pianos, you know, like, so like, you know, it's, so this is how it became. uh, And he, and so he was so desperate for money. He went on the game show to get money, but Mm. the Roman arena. So it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just said, how do you make this work for that character? For the Flintstones, I watched every episode of that thing on tape. Uh, what did, what did Barney do for a living? If you know the Flintstones in the in the, in the uh, cartoon, I think he has. I don't know what the word is. Uh, he sells rocks. Uh, no, no, no. Fred worked at the quarry. Okay. The Fred was in construction. He worked at the quarry. Yeah. Barney was an inventor. Oh, okay. Who, who, that was the running in the show, uh, but his, it was but his inventions always failed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. Uh, nobody knows that after the, it was on the, on the one network for a few years, it went to another network, and then it went to Saturday morning, and when it went to the other network, Fred and Barney were rent-a-cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was an episode where the kids were teenagers. You know, so I was, I was the PhD of the Flintstones. <laughs> and so I noticed that typically, if you put them all together, that the common themes were, Barney, Fred would have a get-rich-quick idea. Mm-hmm. Barney would make it work. Fred would take all the credit, <laughs> right, and screw it mm-hmm. up. Fred was frequently involved in some kind of scam by con artists mm-hmm. or a criminal who looked like him and he was mistaken for a criminal. There were many episodes where a mistaken identity, like almost like Hitchcockian, like the wrong man, Henry Fonda. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, you know, I sort of analyze. You know, I sort of you know put all. And so that's how I came up with the plot for the Flintstones to take these things that seem to be regular beats. Uh, so to me, adapting a video game and and thinking anime was exactly the same process. Mm-hmm. Just see. just a different platform coming into my platform mm-hmm. of motion pictures. And I and as I said, I had just done this comic book uh, of uh, Cadillacs of Dinosaurs, and in the comic book. It was a two-way street with the artist. Uh, I said, uh, as we started going, I said, you know, you're making a mistake in your books. He was, he was, he was uh, like, what? And I said, you keep introducing these wonderful villains and then killing them in the same issue. Oh. <laughs> you need to keep some villains alive so the audience... I mean, I said, who's Batman's villain? So he goes, oh, there's... Okay, who's Superman's villain? Okay, who are your villains who are still alive? Oh. Silent. So then, he's, then he resurrected some of his villains in the subsequent <laughs> issues. I also said you need to differentiate the good guys from the bad guys. So um, for the for the animated show, and then he retrofitted it into the comic book. He invented a flag for each side. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, it's a two way street. And so when I came to this thing, I figured, okay, how do I make this work? I I know I want to have the street fighting, but I don't want to have the tournament. Uh, and then and then so that's why I came to this kind of a GI Joe model which uh, they embraced, and then we were off and running. But one of the things that I said in the meeting, I said, um, can you? Can anyone here, you, you know the Seven Dwarfs movie, you had that, in, you had Snow White, mm-hmm. yeah. right? 
name the seven dwarfs. So there's a meeting. There's like four people from Japan, five people from the United States. Not one person in the room could name all seven dwarfs. Mm. <laughs> then I said, name the seven wonders of the world. Again, nobody could do it. I said, there's a reason for this. Human beings are hardwired to sort of be able to keep, without a pad and paper, about half a dozen ideas in their minds. And my point of this is you've got 19 characters. Mm. And I've got to tell you up front that I can, it's going to be impossible to put them all in the movie. And they go, why not? And I said, this is going to be an act. This movie's going to be 100 minutes long. Okay? If we have 20 characters in the movie, they're going to have five minutes each. Mm. Right? Do the math. So um, I think, and if you look at movies of magnificence, Seven Samurai. It wasn't the 20 Samurai guys. Mm. You're right, you're right, whatever you want. So I'm going to work as a smaller group. So what happened is I wrote the script. Uh, they kept pressing me to add more and more and more, and I held my I, I, and and uh, I held my ground, you know, almost up to the point of production that it was a smaller cast. Um, but as we started to put the movie together, they had delusions of grandeur. They wanted to get Schwarzenegger and Stallone and all these mm. names, and uh, their budget would not would not accommodate. They were they uh, we set the movie up immediately because they were going to finance the movie, Capcom. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the first place he went, they said, fine, we're in, because the studio only had to do prints, advertising, uh, promotion. Um, so the budget was going to be $30 million, which does not allow for the, I mean, that would be the salary for just, you know, for one and a half, like, uh, Stallones at that time. Um, so, uh, we interviewed a lot of people and, um, as we were closing it up, uh, to cast it. Uh, we decided we we're getting a name actor for, for um, uh, Bison, and uh, Stephen Lang, who was the villain in Avengers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, not Avengers, in, in uh, Avatar. Stephen Lang yeah, was yeah. Mm -hmm. in Avatar, wonderful actor. Uh, he mm -hmm. was our first choice to be uh, uh, Bison. Um, and uh, so we had him, we are, that's our first choice for Bison. And then for the other actors, uh, we said, we, you know, we said, look, are we going to get martial artists who we hope can act because they, they not necessarily can. The people who are making these martial arts movies, uh, Cynthia Rockrack is, is not a tremendous actress. She's a great martial artist. But if mm -hmm. that list, or should we get actors and teach them the moves? And we decided that the fighting in the game is so disconnected from actual martial arts. It's all crazy, you know, mm -hmm. move things that people in real life, you know, cannot do. Uh, they're even beyond uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, 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 wire work in in, in uh, you know uh, the, uh, those kind of movies. I said since the moves are so outrageous, let's hire young actors starting out, and in the weeks and months before the movie, we'll train them in these unusual moves. That was the plan. Anyway, at, at, suddenly at a certain point, they said we decided we've got to get some big stars in this movie. Hmm. They said so. We said you can't get this one. We can't afford that one. And the only one that they could get, it's a Jean-Claude Van Damme. We're led to believe we can afford him. That at that time, he was getting like a, a five, five million movie or, or something in that range. They said, mm -hmm. we think if we give, we'll get him to do it. So I, right up front, I said, you know, his fan base expects an R-rated movie. Mm -hmm. And you want a PG-13 movie, there may be a disconnect there. But they became obsessed with this one name that the only one they could afford that was on their list mm -hmm. uh, and I said what about the accent you'll have to explain it. and they had no idea he had an accent because he's dubbed in Japan <laughs> okay right? so I said alright I'll say he's from Louisiana 
you know, which has a French uh, population. Uh, then they wanted to, then they said, now we want to get a star for the villain. Right. So I, I think originally we started out with a budget of like 25 and then kept up to 30 to accommodate. So then, then Raul Julia turned out his kids played the game. And so mm -hmm. we had him. So now we're, now we, you know, we're off. Uh, so do, should I, should I keep going or do you want, want to, uh, you have more questions? Um, yeah, before we get into the the, the production, um, yeah. just in, uh, before that, I, I wanted to ask um, because you, you you named all those adaptations you did, and um, I think the the difference between like Die Hard and uh, the Flintstones and everything, all of these things had some kind of plot. Um, I mean, obviously the novel has yeah yeah I mean, it does have a plot. Yes, there's no plot the in the video game. Um, but even the, like a comic book series or everything, it, it does have a plot. And Street Fighter is just, um, I mean, it has some kind of background and it has a few characters, but there's no plot. And I wanted to ask you if that was, if, if you considered that a, a problem or an opportunity to do something. Well, once I had thought of this kind of G.I. Joe movie, I noticed that all of the characters had a, bio, a, bi a, bi a biography and a backstory. Mm -hmm. uh, each character had, and I, all of them, had either some kind of uh, of uh, backstory with either Bison or Sagat that he, they had a personal grudge against these characters. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the cards, the, the, the characters fall into two groups, mm -hmm. right, that have uh, personal issues that they had been betrayed or deceived or their family had been hurt. So like, so I think the idea that that Chun Li's father had been killed by Bison. I think that was in one of the backstories. What's funny, it always has the blood type. I don't know if you ever noticed that. They're very big in Japan. Where we have in the West, we have, you know, when I say we, I don't include myself. We have this thing about astrology. Oh, your personality is set by astrology. In Japan, there's a thing about blood type. Mm -hmm. So all the characters, if you ever look at biographies of, of uh, anime characters, it'll say their blood type. Mm -hmm. Did you ever notice that? No, actually not. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing, you know, because <laughs> I think it's a variation of what we used to have in the West. Someone would be a phlegmatic character, mm -hmm. you know, like those kind of things, those old ideas. All right, so anyway, um, so I noticed that uh, that if I went with that, I, a backstory developed, that several people had a problem that with Bison. So I said, all right, those people can work together. So that's why I got uh, Chun-Li and um, uh, Balrog and um, Honda uh, I said, well, since they all have an issue with with Bison, I can make a group out of them. So my idea was sort of to break up this large cast into modules that I would then uh, uh, bring together. So the seeds of my plot, so to speak, came out of the backstories that were in the game mm -hmm. with some modification. Uh, and also, um, this was only a few years after uh, uh, Desert Storm, the first Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Right, so that also I said. So the next thing, well, how do you get all these international characters together if it's not for a tournament? What else brings people from all over the world besides, you know, fighting, mm -hmm. actual fighting, mm -hmm. a war? So that's 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 how this thing uh, developed. Mm -hmm. And the, the in the main titles of the movie, we um, have a newscast, and there's mm -hmm. footage we use from Desert Storm, and also that was a way to set the movie up in the main titles. I have a news broadcast that, you know, brings the audience up to uh, the logic of how the movie starts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was which was very effective. And mm -hmm. 
uh, at that point, you don't have to be familiar with the game to uh, to understand what's going on there. Anyway, but the uh, anyway the the brilliant plan that we had was that um, uh, we would uh, shoot all of the dialogue scenes. The idea of the movie was they looked at the schedule and I said, okay, now you have to remember by this point, uh, I had produced probably a hundred hours of network television if you add up all my work in television. Uh, that means a hundred times I had to look at the budget and look at the schedule and say, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do a rain scene. The rain scene has to be indoors because we can't afford on our TV budget to make the street rain, but I can put rain on the windows. You know, these kind of decisions. Mm. I was very familiar with that. And when I would produce a television series like Knight Rider, okay? So uh, Knight Rider, I was totally responsible for making 22 episodes as an executive producer, uh, and I had like $30 million to work with. So I had, so people were saying to me, uh, you know, they're giving you $30 million, you can handle it? And I go, yeah, I, I know how to, you know, do a schedule and a budget and stuff like that. So uh, when I wrote the script, I was conscious in my mind of what was feasible. So in my mind, I wrote a script that was going to be um, six or seven weeks at the studio in Australia and three weeks on location in Thailand. That was the plan. Anyway, after I turned the script in, um, uh, what I left out here is when they when they got Rao Julia, which I was very excited about, they said we want you to add more characters. It was like a trade-off. Hmm. So I went from so it went from seven to ten to eleven. It kept creeping up, you know, with the, the cast getting larger. Literally, they literally we started the movie. They made me add this uh, this ca uh, Captain Sawada, mm -hmm. which was instead of they had a character in the book and they had recently added a character to the game that was a copy of Bruce Lee. And they see, and I said, we're not doing that. We're not putting in this Bruce Lee ripoff in the movie. I'm not doing that. So then they said, okay, change him to Captain Sawada. Mm -hmm. So that was literally the movie started. And they wanted him to play uh, 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 Ryu. Mm -hmm. And the guy, he, he could not speak English at all. If you see in the movie, he stands up and he says, uh, uh, he says, uh, Colonel, uh, whoever would drive that boat would uh, have to be out of his mind. Well, it took him like two hours to say that. <laughs> No, I'm serious. It was like, I mean, my Japanese in a, in a, in a sushi restaurant is better than that. So there was, I said, look, there's no way he can play that part. Um, uh, so um, anyway, um, we, we cast a movie here in Los Angeles, and the plan was to do all the dialogue scenes in the first six weeks. And while we were doing that, because we did not have the budget to send the people to, the, to train the people before the movie. So he said, okay, we have six weeks of time for the young cast members to be learning the fights mm -hmm. or they even have to show up and film any scenes right that was the plan uh i flew to australia on the way to um uh, bangkok which is where we started and i get a phone call from our costume designer marilyn vance is an academy award-winning uh costume designer and she's Stephen, we have a real problem here i says just uh, I'll tell you. When, I'll tell you when, when we're in person, and she tells me that Raul Julia came up looking like a shadow of himself. Mm -hmm. The costume that she had fitted for him months before in Los Angeles was hanging on him. I said he looks like he's been deathly ill. So we are told by his representatives that he had contracted an intestinal parasite when he made this movie in Brazil uh, about about um, a, uh, a, a, a it's a, I can't think of the title. It was about a. A cardinal who was uh, protecting the indigenous people. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, what are we going to do? I, I can't put him on camera looking like that. So he said, all right, what we're going to have to do now is we're going to have to put the soundstage work back and start with the other stuff. But now we're throwing actors into scenes. They haven't rehearsed these fights. They haven't been trained. So it became a situation where some people were being taught the moves for a fight a day or two, sometimes even the day of filming. If you look at the movie, uh, I, I had to adjust the schedule uh, of the movie to push Raul's work back. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I'm going to push his work in the back of the uh, back of our can we shoot, give him milkshakes, fatten him up. And, uh, and, 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 and we did to an effect. I was unable to avoid filming one day with him early. The scene when he comes down to the laboratory and says, how are we going, Dr. Dalson, mm-hmm. with our experiment? You can look, he looks very gaunt there, but not so much in the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. So um, as we're filming, I'm going, these fights are like a little bit shaky. I'm going to have to like uh, cover it with uh, uh, more camera. So I was getting nervous about that. But a bigger problem became, um, to my astonishment, they give me the schedule for the movie, and the schedule for the movie is seven weeks in Thailand and mm-hmm. three weeks in, and there's all these scenes that I wrote expecting them to be on a soundstage in Australia, mm-hmm. and they're all in Thailand. And the only thing that was in, at that time, the only thing, the only, the, principally the only thing that was in, said scheduled for Australia was uh, that kind of James Bond set, Bison's entire complex. But all the other stuff, and it became quickly clear, and I go, why are we there? And they're saying, because the prices are so good in Thailand, we'll get a lot of bang for a buck. It won't look like a $30 million movie. It'll look like a $50 million movie. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of movies filmed. The, the Hong Kong filmmakers are all, there's experienced crews. We've got a great uh, company we've subcontracted with. Uh, and we've got a, a, a abandoned building. It's going to be a great soundstage. So I get there, and all the equipment is subpar. The lights would go on. They would fail. You would, uh, it, it, you would try and film a 10-hour day. And maybe you maybe the equipment was the lights electricity was on for three hours, not the city electricity. I mean our generators. There's a wonderful building that was a, a big location for us, which is the the headquarters of the of the uh, Allied Nations, which mm-hmm. was a um, a Coast Guard station that had been abandoned because they built a new one. And they said your your set is going to be the um, the, the hangar for the mm-hmm. Coast Guard boats, and we're going to close off the doors to the outside. Right, and it'll be perfect. So it turns out that you can still hear the waves under the wooden floor they put in, sloshing mm-hmm. around on the river. The ceiling was t- uh, was tin. It's the rainy season, so the rain on the roof is like this, and there were holes in the, in all the walls. So like an example of a scene. So we used we filmed stuff, and we knew we we're gonna have to throw it away. So you know the scene where he um he does the briefing on how we're gonna attack Bison's fortress, and there's mm-hmm. a projection of the stealth boat behind him. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty dark room. We yeah. filmed that first in Thailand. And, you know, in a typical John Woo movie where there's the bullet holes in the walls and the birds are flying around, mm-hmm. right? So we literally had sunlight coming in, even though it was raining, light coming in <laughs> these holes in the wall and birds that got in. They were out for the movie <laughs> flying around. And you know, we had to throw away all the footage. So um, after like... Um, after three weeks in in uh, after three weeks in Thailand, we were two weeks behind schedule. Mm-hmm. 
So then, and, and I've been saying all along, it's not going to work. And, and people are saying to me, oh, Steve, you've never been responsible for $30 million, never had a schedule like this. And I said, what are you talking about? They had 22 episodes of a television show. That's 20, that's like 10 times this shooting schedule. Mm. That's 20, oh, 20. I, you know, I'm telling, I, I before we got on the airplane, I'm saying, this is recipe for disaster. The strangest thing of all was the very first day on the set in Thailand. They have a thing in Asia they do. I did a movie in Hong Kong with Soi uh, Hart to do the same thing. Mm, they bring off, out a pig. Yeah. They sacrifice. They, uh, yeah, they sacrifice a pig, right? And mm -hmm. they do a little, little Buddha ceremony. Okay. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're just finishing that ceremony when all of a sudden a guy bursts through the ring of people, throws himself at my feet, and says, Oh, sir, doctor, professor, Mr. D'Souza, you must know very bad people here. You have criminals here. They are cheating you. They are threatening me. And then he gets dragged away. And I go, what What just, what just happened? What was that? <laughs> oh, it's some guy. It's some kind of, some guy. He's uh, got a problem with his brother-in-law. Ignore that. And then there was a note under my door. And in sort of mangled English. Uh, it's very crooked people stealing your money and making us give kickbacks. And I go, what the, you know. So uh, I should give it to the producer, and, and this is before we had cell phone cameras because uh, I, I was so sort of shocked to have this under my door. I called the producer. Oh, I'll take that. You know, the <laughs> local producer there. I, I wish I had taken a photograph of it. So um, anyway, uh, I think this contributed to what was going on. I think there was some, like, graft. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, the producer, uh, the, our, our American producer, uh, apparently was having heart palpitations. Uh, and said, oh, I, I got to go see my doctor in the States. And we brought in Tim Zinneman, a very experienced producer, son of Fred Zinneman, you know, the great mm -hmm. uh, filmmaker. And I had worked with him on The Running Man. I knew him. So he came in and he said, didn't anybody notice this? I go, yeah, I noticed. <laughs> so we sort of reinvented the schedule. We went to Australia early. And that was the good news. The bad news was that the studio had a hard release date. So we lost two weeks. We weren't going to get them back. Mm. You know, we, you know, so you had a 10 week shoot and you, and now you have like seven weeks left. So now the work in Australia, which is more efficient, was rushed. Uh, mm -hmm. would agree. Um, and finally, as we started, we're cutting the movie, we're going and a decision was made early on. So we're looking and one of the things that bothered me is as the fights are going on, I'm saying, where are these moves? So it turned out that our fight coordinator, uh, that our, our stunt coordinator, who I'd worked with on many movies before, he, you know, never got the memo or he resisted the idea. Uh, his, his trademark um, was always very realistic fighting. You look at the fighting in Die Hard, the big fight at the end mm -hmm. of the movie. It's kind of very real street fighting. I mean, um, Bruce is like a kind of a street fighter and um, uh, Gudnov is kind of more elegant and trained. But it's kind of like a dirty, gritty fight. And mm -hmm. this is what he specialized in. And he just seemed unwilling or unfamiliar or unable to do this more fantastic stylized fighting. So we're looking for these fights and we're not seeing any of these moves from the video game. It's just generic fighting. So um, as we were go going to the, to the end of the shoot, uh, uh, it finally got a handle on that. So the fight very late in the shoot was the fight with Raul and Van Damme, which I mm -hmm. saved for the very end of the shoot uh, because I needed Raul to be back in shape. So if you look at him there, he's gained a lot of weight back. He's pretty robust. Mm -hmm. He did a, he did a tremendous amount of his own fighting. He was even on the wires. Hang on, when they pick him up, mm -hmm. you can see that's really him when they pick him up. So that was a good fight. Um, but there were other examples that happened. For example, 
again, people an American, you know, you know, a more an American studio picture would not have made the mistake. But like, um, and when we were shooting in Thailand, uh, John Claude said, "Listen, uh, they're opening a plan in Hollywood, uh, in Hong Kong. I want to go there for the opening." So somebody let him go for the opening, but booked him on a last-minute flight that he missed. So oh. now we're filming Monday morning, and we don't have him. So I go, what am I going to shoot instead? So because Van Damme was not there to shoot the scene he was in, I had to shoot the scene where Ken and Ryu get uh, break um, Honda and Balrog out of their cell. Mm-hmm. But there was supposed to be a substantial fight there, but no one had rehearsed it. So instead, mm-hmm. there's just a funny joke where the prison guard turns the corner and two fists hit him. Mm-hmm. That was all I could think of pulling out of my ass. And, you know, so <laughs> there was example after example of this where we, you know, it's a, people, it's a fighting game. Where's, where's the fighting? Um, so um, after we shot the, um, the big fight with uh, John claude and Raul, this is in Australia, and that looked so good, even as we were assembling it, I said, we've got to get the rest of this up to this level. So that's when... Uh, Capcom released the money for us to do an additional um, a week, additional seven days of filming after mm-hmm. we came back to North America. So we rebuilt the set we had already had in Australia of uh, par- portions of, of um, um, Bison's Fortress. And the fight between Ken and Ryu and Sagat and um, uh, uh, Vega mm-hmm. uh, in, in the, uh, lo- in the uh, locker room, of the, uh, the bad guy locker room, that was filmed in Vancouver, and you mm-hmm. can see that that fighting is is much more artful and skilled than uh, we had had. Uh, so that way, I said, all right, all right, it may be a little bit weak on the way up there, but the last ten minutes of the movie is going to deliver mm-hmm. uh, uh, the 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 the, uh, 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 the fights. Um, one of the other uh, kind of short sighted things that happened is when I designed the movie, and again, you have to remember I'd done all these TV shows, were kind of science fiction, Knight Rider. Uh, the Six Million Dollar Man, even in those early, primitive days of the early 80s, a lot of these shows had video playback. You know, Steve, the Russians have stolen, you know, they, there'd be a projection screen. So when I designed the movie, I said, we need to have two second units. I need a second unit for like explosion stunt works, like you always have. But I want a third unit just to shoot the stuff that's on the video monitors. Mm-hmm. And that should be three guys. And we, every day they're just shooting, walking down corridors, saluting, you know, like people marching. Because everywhere you go in the show, there's playbacks all the time. Mm-hmm. So, again, I get when I get to location, I go, where's the third unit? We're going to have the second unit do it. So what happens is the second unit that is supposed to be training the guys to fight is spending a considerable amount of time shooting random CCTV stuff. You know, like bison guards saluting each other. Mm-hmm headquarters or the gate going up and down at the UN headquarters so hours and hours are being eaten up that stuff that like uh, a dad going to Disneyland could shoot on his phone <laughs> is being shot by our professional crew and the, and uh, an example was we always wanted to get the Chun-Li move which is upside down and spins mm-hmm. right they didn't get to that until the day we were shooting and they you know and they did and, and they're doing a test and I go guys there's, they're trying to do a test of it and they're shooting on a I said, We're, we got to shoot the fight. We can't, you know. So that's why that's not in the movie. Because, mm-hmm. like, the practices get getting bumped and bumped, you know. And so the, if you look at the movie, there's wonderful footage on the monitors behind people's heads. But every time <laughs> you see uh, something behind people's heads, right, that's mm-hmm. like those actors could have been rehearsing fights. Uh, so, um, 
Anyway, so now we get we cut the movie. We have a wonderful score from Graham Ravel, um, and uh, the new material from Vancouver is putting it together. And we turn the movie in for uh, a rating. Now I had worked in television, which doesn't have the same rating system. It mm-hmm. never even had an official rating system. But I was very familiar with the thinking of these kind of people. And I had already made a number of motion pictures. Now, most of my motion pictures at the time had been R-rated, right? So, mm-hmm. so I knew what triggers an R-rating. Uh, so we cut the movie and we turn it in. Now, right before we turn the movie in, uh, you, have you seen the movie, This Movie Is Not Yet Rated? Mm, yeah, I've seen it okay. a while so, ago, but I've seen it. Yeah. And it's some random people. There's a school teacher and a priest, mm, you know, yeah, and, and like they a, say, a... I, I was offended by this, so it deserves an R rating. Exactly. So mm. I know. All right. So we, right before we sent our movie over to be rated, there was a school shooting. Not one mm. of the big ones. Maybe just two people were wounded. You know, no big deal. But it was enough, like to like get these people's minds going. I delivered a PG movie, PG-13 mm. movie. I, there's no doubt in my mind. I wrote it. I shot it. They come back. They give us an R rating. So we're mm. stunned because we have a toy line. I had already had many meetings about the toys. Strangely enough, as it sounds, a lot of the toys, don't, don't tell anybody this, were like recycled G.I. Joe toys. You may know this already. <laughs> Do you know this or not? Somebody has a site <laughs> on this. Somebody on the site has somebody on the internet has a site that shows a lot of the the, the, the toy line, and not so much some of the characters, even their bodies, mm-hmm. are recycled and repainted GI Joes, and all of okay. the vehicles in the in the street. You look it up, Street Fighter GI Joe toys. Okay. Do, there's a big expose for you to do on your show. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, you cannot advertise toys for an R-rated movie. You can't even advertise an R-rated movie on children's television in the daytime. Mm. So they're in a panic, you know. So I said, "Look, it's a mistake. We'll get it. We'll get a PG-13." So now we we cut the movie, and I start taking out something particularly bloody. Let's get out of that shot before the blood shows. Uh, when we shoot people, we got to cut before the guy falls down and bleeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that blow to the face too hard? Uh, to back up a little bit, when I was doing the Saturday morning cartoon show of Cadillacs and Dinosaurs which was also a Capcom project. Uh, the, the same At that same time, even though it was an action-adventure show, they were very nervous about violence. So what would happen more and more, we'd animate the show and they'd make us change it. So if you had two guys fighting, what they would do would show the hero, pull his fist back, right? And we had shot, like, the guy, bad guy get hit and falls into a tree. What we had to do in post to make the network happy with the cartoon show was, hero pulls his fist back, cut to the tree, and the bad guy rolls into it. But you hear a pow. You never, it was this kind of, so I knew every trick he could do. I recut the picture. R-rated again. Now you're only supposed to get three bites at the apple. Now we're in a total panic. So now I cut it back further. Like mm-hmm. the, the hardest blows get pulled. No blood. Bullet hits are cut away from. As, as far as I could take it back. And we turn it in. And we get, uh, we wanted PG. We get, um, no, we, we got, we wanted a PG-13. So I cut it back as much as I can, and they give us our final rate, final rating, PG. Okay, now we're fucked, because no teenager is going to see mm. a movie that's appropriate for the little brother or sister. Mm. We wanted PG-13, now we got PG, which is like, also bad. 
So now what are we going to do? And I said, I got this. Trust me. Because they always look at the movie one last time. They want, they want to see the final print to make sure you didn't slip anything in. Mm-hmm. So I had John Claude come into the editing room and say one more line. Yeah, there's a point where he rappels down into the bad guy's headquarters, right? And mm-hmm. I had him say, uh, four years of ROTC for this shit. ROTC is a military training in college. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe something like that. So now we send the movie in and they go, hey, we saw you trying to put a curse word in the movie. Uh-uh-uh. Goodbye, PG. You have a PG-13 and you're going to learn to like it. Like, oh, okay, fine. So that's how we got the uh, PG-13. <laughs> okay. Now, with everything that, that changed during production and with all the problems that, that came up uh, while shooting the film and while editing the film and everything, um, like if you compare the, the, the script that you wrote um, back after that pitch meeting and the finished film, um, how much of that script is in the film? How close is it to, is it to what you originally envisioned? Well, I would say the script uh, that I wrote had a smaller cast and we spent more time with fewer characters. Van Damme's character had much more screen time because we hired him for $7 million, but we only had him for like four weeks. Mm. When I wrote the original script, I assumed that I have, you know, I always knew going in that that, that character was going to be very important. Mm. Right. So Van Damme's role shrank, which is why the idea he pretends to be dead for a portion of the movie came when, uh, in a rewrite, when I realized I didn't have him for the whole shoot. Uh, right. Okay. So I, how do I get him off stage and not have it seem like, you know, strange? You know, like, mm. you know these movies that Van Damme now makes direct-to-video or Bruce Willis makes in, like, he's in the movie for two minutes? You, yeah. know, I, you know, so I would say that um, the characters were a little richer. You sort of got to know them a little bit better because there were fewer characters sharing screen time. Um, uh, uh, Guile was more prominent in the movie. And the fighting was rougher. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I, I work out fights in great detail. And the choreographer, I don't wait to the soundstage. Um, I sort of plan ahead. So, like, for example, early on when I was still writing the movie, they gave me blueprints of the sets. So I could plan on the, you know, so uh, in Die Hard, there's an authenticity to those fights because I walked the building. I walked through the building with the stunt mm-hmm. crew. And we see, oh, there's stairway there. Okay, we can use that. Um, there's uh, uh, there's locker room. We can use that, you know. So uh, the the fight in a dentist's office should be different than the fight in a cowboy bar. Mm-hmm. In a cowboy bar, you're hitting each other with chairs. You fall off the balcony. You break a bottle. The mirror gets shot. You know, you slide down the bar. In the dentist's office, if you know what you're doing, someone's going to try and kill you with the drill. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a mise en scene. You want to use that. Uh, so. Um, uh, so I would say that my original vision of the movie had better fighting and a smaller, uh, a richer cast. Mm-hmm. But uh, in general, it followed the, uh, the, the the lines along of the movie. The strangest mm-hmm. thing uh, of all that happened when the movie came out is, um, uh, first of all, this is basically uh, until the Tomb Raider movies came along, which I worked on as well, um, on both of them actually. Uh, this was this was one of the most successful adaptations of a video game. Mm-hmm. It is also tied for Van Damme's biggest movie. This movie and Time Cop are his only two movies that made $100 million. Mm-hmm. They, they came within like $50,000 of each other, I think. They're both like $104 million, something like that. Um, so uh, 
it was it was a financial success, a tremendous financial success for Capcom because they financed the movie. So they got to keep, you know, most of the money that came back. The studio got its distribution fee back, but they did not take the distribution fee they would get if they made the movie. The studio takes a 30% distribution fee when they make it. They had a much smaller thing. So it was a great, brought in a lot of revenue and sold a ton of toys. Uh, mm -hmm. They were very unhappy with the critical reception. Mm. Now, in fact, uh, while the movie was out and was still produced, performing well uh, in the box office, um, they said, you have ideas for a sequel? And I wrote up a whole treatment for a sequel that they were going to make, which later got folded into a cartoon show. A lot of it was going to be in the sequel. There was a cartoon show they made, which mm -hmm. followed my continuity of the movie. Not the Japanese anime, the American animated show. Mm -hmm. uh, it followed my continuity and still had Chun-Li as a reporter and Van Damme and the UN, all that stuff. Uh, but uh, once, the, uh, once the movie was finished its run, uh, I think he got, uh, uh, got obsessed with the critical acclaim. It was very important to them. Um, so they decided they're going to go another direction, make a very, and they start, and when they made the second picture, they said, this is a serious drama. There were early interviews and stuff. We're making a serious drama. The last picture was a little childish. This is, so, of course, the second picture was a disaster. The, uh, you know, our movie cost 30, $33 million because they, they, we, we ended up going back and reshooting. Uh, so it was $33 million and made over $100 million, plus toys, and it was huge on home video. The second movie cost $50 million and made mm. like 20 in the world. Mm. Uh, so uh, perhaps they should have stayed with uh, uh, with uh, uh, my approach uh, uh, for the sequel. But the funniest thing is, as I said, we got mostly brutal reviews. I mean, generally speaking, action-adventure movies don't get good reviews uh, mm. in general. I mean, Die Hard was the rare one that mostly got good reviews. Uh, but other movies I've done um, were, were just, uh, just brutal. Uh, and then later on, like nowadays, you get these paperback books, um, movies on home video. Mm -hmm. I'll look up a movie I did called Ricochet with Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. All right. And it says the underrated Ricochet gets forced on. Underrated by you, asshole. I remember what you wrote <laughs> in the newspaper 20 years ago as opposed to your paperback <laughs> book now. Uh, so, But the strangest thing at that, looking back, is all of these reviews said this movie is so stupid and violent, it's, it's accidentally funny. So mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody could look at that movie and think it's accidentally funny, mm. you all know it was funny. I mean, one of the things that uh, I, I embraced in making the movie was trying to make it, well, you know, children are going to watch this movie, and so it's it got to be lighter, and all of my movies have, have comedy relief in them. So mm -hmm. it's very strange that this year, the 30th anniversary of the movie, there's been all these revivals and screenings of the movie, uh, not just here, but all over the world. And... Mm. Um, I went to one in Madrid, Spain, uh, where I was a guest, and there were all these people. There were it was almost like the Rocky Horror Show, uh, that the audience is like doing the dialogue with the movie. People mm -hmm. came in costume, and I had all of these people uh, in their uh, all of these people like in their mid to late thirties, coming up to me, asking me to autograph their memorabilia from then, mm -hmm. like they still had their toy in the box. And they all said, this was my favorite movie when I was a kid. And I realized that for a lot of people of that age, this was the first grown-up movie they saw in their mind. <laughs> this is the first movie they let the, their parents felt, all right, PG-13, let you see this Van Damme movie. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was funny now to see, you know, late in the game, 
uh, uh, mm. this, uh, uh, and again, the revisionist approach. This is a great comedy. And now, again, on the 30th anniversary, there were all these things on the Internet. Why Street Fighter is a great movie, mm. right? You know, like, it's a time to reexamine Street Fighter. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> Uh, I, you know, my my wife accused me of being a little bit, uh, last year, earlier in the year, uh, she noticed I'm printing these things up. She says, we're getting a little Miss Haversham here, aren't we? You know, Miss <laughs> Haversham in, uh, in, in uh, Great Expectations. She uh, got yeah. sued on her wedding day, and she, mm. she wears a wedding dress all the time, and she sits in the room, and the cake is moldy. So I said, <laughs> no, but, I, but, I, but I, I couldn't help but notice this, you know, that it was getting all this love 30 years later. Mm. Yeah, I think it's easier for people nowadays to see what you've been trying to do and to appreciate it more i think um i never understood why the film was so brutally reviewed i don't know i mean it's not a perfect movie it has its flaws but um i always try to see what the film has to offer instead of uh, trying to find out where it fails well i Um, think (laughs) excuse me i think part of that was a perception and it had already had happened when um, Mario Brothers came out, uh, yeah. Roger Ebert wrote a review saying you can't make a movie out of a video game. Mm. Video games are not art. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very uh, 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 um, uh, significant article he wrote. It was, it was an essay he published. It was not one of his reviews. It was like about a week or two after the movie came out, he wrote that. So I think that was in the minds of how, how, how low has the movie business come? That were taking these mindless video games, mm. that are, you know, and making them into movies. So I think they had their knives out, and it, different things can 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 trigger that. I, I, I'll give you another example. I did. Have you seen the movie I did called Ricochet? Mm-hmm. I've seen it. All right, okay. it was a while ago, but I've seen it. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, this was 1991. So we shoot this movie, uh, and uh, I've always been because I sort of worked my way up the food chain, and when I by the time I got into movies as a screenwriter. I had already been a television producer, so I had worked on closely with executives in the studios, and many of the executives I worked in television had were now studio executives. So I'm involved much more than most writers. I'm involved in pre-production. I'm involved in the meetings for what the poster should be, and I'm often welcome in the in the uh, ed- editing suite. In fact, I have, not unlike the comic book characters, in addition to my mild-mannered screenwriter identity, I have a secret identity. I was known as a movie doctor, a script doctor, but mm-hmm. I've been a movie doctor. I've actually been hired by studios to save movies I had nothing to do with after they've been shot. They had mm-hmm. a disastrous test screening. Oh, my God. Nowadays, uh, it's always like on, on social media. They're doing reshoots of the Avengers. What does that mean? You know. So back when I'm talking about doing this stuff like you know, 15 years ago and stuff, and on a number of big movies, uh, it, it never made the headlines. So... Um, in this particular case, we finished the movie um, Ricochet. I ended up being involved in the editing of the movie. Uh, and now we have a meeting about the promotion. And the, uh, they come into Joel Silver's office from the, the, the distribution the advertising. And they, okay, Joel, we're thinking that we should have the press junket for this. Because you have two stars who are uh, award-winning actors who were started out as stage actors in New York, uh, we should do the press junket. Uh, in New York, where all the critics know them from their state Broadway work, it'll be much better than doing the junket in L.A. And he says, and Joel says, no, no press junket. And they go, what? He says, those bastards, they pissed all over Hudson Hawk. Not one person gave Hudson Hawk. Got, it gave all, and I said, Joel, Hudson Hawk deserved to be pissed on. <laughs> we, we knew when we were making the movie that it was spiraling out of control. 
you know, you know, we, you know, we knew it. I mean, that's another story to be told. But actually, mm. um, the actor uh, who plays uh, the villain in Hudson Hawk wrote a book. That's you, if you want to know what happened on the Hudson Hawk, mm. get get his book. Uh, yeah, Richard Grant. You mean Richard right? Grant? Yes. So he has yeah. a whole chapter. You don't need me to tell you. He tells it better. I said, okay. I, I said, it deserves. He said, so I, he says, eh, that doesn't matter. I'm not buying those guys one drink, giving them one <laughs> one canapé. So now they're in a pit. They say, Joel, if you open a movie with two Academy Award actors and you don't show it to the press, they're all going to have their knives out. The first sentence mm. of every review is going to be, I'm, this, they, they, in the room they said, she said, the first sentence every going to review is going to be, when a movie with stars of this caliber opens without a press screening, you know it's a turkey. Mm. Ah, nah, yeah. nah, it's quality they can tell. Well, sure enough, that happened. Mm. I went on the primitive internet of 1991, and I looked at every major newspaper in America. Every major newspaper in America had that a variation of that sentence mm. and gave it like one half of a star. The only one that didn't, well, coming back. So I'm like, I'm miserable after the movie has these terrible reviews. I'm, I'm like cut, soaking my wounds. Say, well, I, I told you so to myself in the mirror, you know. <laughs> uh, and I get a phone call from uh, Mark Canton, who's a big executive producer. He's hey, congratulations on the movie. And I go, what movie? Like, he says, I saw the review in the LA Times. Listen, I have a project for you. So it turned out Kevin Thomas, who was a reviewer in the LA in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, who loves genre, right? Mm -hmm. He gave it like four stars, and he said, <laughs> he said, he said, why on earth Warner Brothers did not have press screenings for this fantastic picture with two great? So I got a job off of the review, mm. off of the one good <laughs> review uh, uh, in America. Uh, so anyway, uh, so that's a that's a good tight thriller, mm. you know. And, and but because there was no press screening, the knives are out. Just like mm. because it began as a video game. Uh, the knives are out. It's just like if a really terrific movie came out right now with uh, a star who's just who's uh, just been just uh, had a scandal. That's mm -hmm. going to like impact it, you know. Like, could Kevin Spacey get a good review if a movie came out this week? Yeah, probably not. Uh, and maybe he shouldn't. But maybe. The, but 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 I'm just saying. There's, there's yeah, it, nothing. Nothing goes on in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, a movie can come out that was written filmed and finished before a movie that came out last month and the reviewers will say in a desperate attempt to copy the success of the recent western right mm. but and you go hey wait a minute this one was actually in the can first so there's there's these other circumstances that can affect it so um i'm very aware of the flaws of street fighter i was aware of them when i was making it but nonetheless mm. considering everything uh, I'm pleased that it's getting its uh, day in court now. If you want to see uh, a picture I directed where nothing went wrong, uh, there's a <laughs> film that I did that is also a little, very, not very well known, but it did very well in Europe uh, called Possessed, which mm -hmm. is the true story of The Exorcist. I don't know if you've seen it. But mm. if you can catch up on my movie, you can get it. It's on, um, I think it's streaming in Europe right now, but it's also mm. on, uh, it, there were international uh, uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. In fact, it was so successful in France that they sent a, a film crew uh, from France to interview me for the added value on their uh, Blu-ray release. Mm -hmm. uh, release in, in, uh, so, <clears throat> so that's like, uh, uh, that's a picture which had a much smaller budget. But 
it was like you know no language problems uh no like gigantic cast you know it's a small cast it's a uh, mm-hmm. straight up drama the um the payoff of that story is uh, i get a phone call um this has got to be about 10 years ago i guess i get this phone call from this producer it says listen i was watching cable television last night and i saw this horror movie and i'm and I go, well this is great and then I push the button. I go, you directed that. And I go, you had like, <laughs> you directed Christopher Plummer and Piper Laurie, two Academy Award winning actors. I was on the edge of my seat. Uh, maybe you're, you're, you know, uh, you're a really good director, but you shouldn't be doing a serious drama. You should be doing action movies. I've got a picture about to go. Uh, it's right up your alley. And you do the rewrite, you can direct it. So I go, well, what is it? He said, it's Die Hard in a Building. <laughs> This is, this is because by this time now, like after 20 years, they're diehard in a boat. So the, so the guy sends a script over. It's just a, a terrible, embarrassing copy of Die Hard. It's just horrible beyond belief. So I would tell this story to people, and no one would believe me. They'd, oh, come on, I'm right. So I happened to mention it to Bruce Willis one time when I saw him. So when the last uh, Die Hard movie came out, mm. there was an interview with him, how Die Hard had become a thing. And he said, let me tell you a funny story. This producer called Steve D'Souza. So now that Bruce Willis has told my story, now people believe it. <laughs> I actually made that joke in a review once uh, of a like a diehard knockoff, um, yeah. you know, just a video release. I think it was called Skyscraper, and and I started the, the review. Is that the one just, with, the, with, with, with the model? Not the yeah, one with with uh, Anna Nicole Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was yeah, stoned terrible out of movie. Her, she was stoned out of her mind on that movie. She was on. Yeah, Quaver. I've seen. I've seen the B-roll, and it's, oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. tragic. It's, it's, it's tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And I started the, re- the review just joking, saying, well, this is like Die Hard 2 just in a building. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, you know, our, we, we, were, we were well aware that, that Die Hard was like a disaster movie. So that's why the second we, – so we, we, our plan once, – once the movie opened, we were talking about doing the sequel like literally the Monday after the movie opened. So the first thing we said was, all right – if this was the Towering Inferno, the sequel should be Airport or the Poseidon Adventure. So we did mm-hmm. Airport, and we literally had a plan to do uh, on a boat for the third picture. But then uh, uh, Under Siege came out, mm-hmm. and we said, well, that can't be the third picture. We can't do the boat anymore. Mm. Yeah, I think every location, basically, where you can yeah, yeah. do a Die Hard uh, variation has been, has been used by now. Um, but yeah, sometimes I, I, when I talk to people, I kind of uh, get strange looks when I tell them that I actually like Die Hard 2 even better than the first one. Um, you know who I else? Like... You know who else did Roger Ebert? Roger Ebert liked it better. Really? Yeah, Roger. If you look it up, Roger yeah. Ebert's okay. review of Die Hard 2, he talks how it's superior to the first movie. Uh, he what he didn't like uh, in the first movie was how stupid uh, the police captain was. Uh, yeah. uh, his performance, his performance was much more cartoony than what I wrote. He was channeling, mm-hmm. you know, that movie it, it had two of the it, it, that movie had two of the it had two of the go to assholes in the eighties. You had uh, <laughs> and, the, the, uh, William, uh, what's his name? William um, Atherton. Who, yeah, who William Atherton from from Ghostbusters. Yeah, and, uh, the actor from the um, the, the school movie, um, The Breakfast Club. So you had. The Breakfast Club principal. He used to police. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, you had t- twice the assholes in one movie. So I, Paul, I, I Paul think something. it's Paul Gleason. 
Uh, a wonderful yeah. actor. But I think Paul Gleason got, I think his performance got a little too cartoony. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he, he would, Paul Gleason was picked out particularly by um, Roger Ebert in his review of Die Hard. And he said, unfortunately, the movie descends into the stupid plot where the authorities have to, where, where the authority figure played by Paul Gleason has to be an idiot or the movie doesn't work. So, uh, it, for all, go figure. And there, and there was uh, another example was there was a guy here, uh, a local on the air reporter, and somehow he got into his head, I was told, that I don't know where he got the idea, it was not in anybody's mind, that. Um, William Atherton was doing a parody of him. Mm -hmm. and, and and unlike William Atherton, who was tall and handsome, this newscaster was short and, you know, short and, and schlubby. So he, when, so, you know, it got amazing reviews, Die Hard, all around the country. This mm -hmm. local reporter said, he went on the air and he said, I'm giving this movie um, minus one. On a scale of one to ten, I'm giving it minus one. And the other, and the other people in this TV studio... They all turned on him. The, the weatherman, the news. What are you kidding? Did you see the same movie? So then, when Die Hard Two came out, right? Maybe still convinced that Atherton's supposed to be him. He said, on a scale of one to ten, I give this movie a zero. So I said, so I so I go, wow, what an improvement! <laughs> right? We went from minus minus one to like zero. That's a big step up. <laughs> so you should have made more sequels then. Eventually, yeah, yeah. you would have gotten to ten. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember Roger Ebert's review um, of Die Hard 2 where he says that, uh, where he praises Rennie Harlan's direction and says, well, I love it when people find new ways of showing me um, sequences like the, the one where Bruce Willis um, hits the eject button on the plane yeah. where he is hurled towards the camera. Um, I, I think he singled out that shot yeah. in his review. Yeah. Huh. It was a big fight. It was a big, big fight for that shot, uh, you know, because it was a very expensive. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was, but we 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 got it in. <clears throat> Another thing about I don't know if we're going to segue into other movies, but um, the uh, the studio. One of the things that concerned me, uh, the the greatest compliment I got on Die Hard after it came out is people came up to me and said, "Wow, I thought Bruce was going to get killed," because if you remember back in the '70s, movie stars would die. You know, mm -hmm. like Paul Newman would frequently win, but die. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Frank Sinatra wins. It gets all the prisoners it, to escape from the prison camp, but he gets mm -hmm. shot, you know. So the idea that the hero could be that vulnerable uh, was was wonderful. And for the second movie, we go, well, he survived the first movie. How do we get that vulnerability back? And that's why I came up with the idea that he tries to stop the plane from crashing. Mm -hmm. and fails. So the studio, and it works for the character, he sees a broken man afterwards, he's crying, so he gets the vulnerability back. The studio was tremendously nervous. You're going to kill all those civilians. I put in the script that the little girl has a doll, and the stewardess puts a seatbelt on the doll. You know, I'm laughing. <laughs> this is going to shake up the audience. So the studio was so nervous that the audience would turn, would revolt, and hate the movie, mm -hmm. that when we shot the special effects, which is big model planes, they made us shoot it twice. Once we had all fake airlines, you know, like, so instead of like, uh, British airways, it's called like, um, Windsor airways, you know, if, if, so instead of United, we had a UPS plane, it was painted the same colors, but it was WPS world parcel service. So mm -hmm. we actually shot that plane crash. So, and we actually recorded dialogue 
It crashed. Both the pilot and co-pilot are dead. So it's only killed two people instead of 150. But when we had the test screening where we killed the whole thing, you know, the audience was stunned, but it just made them hate the villains more. Mm. Nobody, when they filled out the car, said, what did you like the least? Nobody said the plane crash. It just made you mm. hate the villains more. Yeah, it makes, it makes everything more serious. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you say, it, it gives uh, Bruce Willis more vulnerability, I think. The, the balance, especially in the Die Hard movies, is, is excellent where you have the drama and the action and the comedy that, that I wanted to ask you about this this kind of balance, how you when you approach a project, um, how you sort of try and figure out how how much can you go into a comedy comedy direction and um, how much like how how over the top can you get when it comes to the action sequences? Um, well, I always try and put as much humor into a script that is plausible, but the humor is never uh, uh, jokey humor. It is out of character. So if you look at the things that are, that made people laugh uh, uh, in uh, Die Hard, for example, um, one moment is when um, the FBI comes and someone comes up to uh, Paul Gleason and says, the FBI is here. And he says, the FBI is here. And by this time, we know he's a jerk. And by this time, we like Al Pal. And Al Pal looks at him as he's fixing his clothes and says, would you like a breath mint? <laughs> right? So the audience laughs. But if you, the next day at work, no one says, wasn't that great when the guy said you want a breath mint? Mm-hmm. Like, that, it's not, it only works in the context of character. Or one of the tremendous laughs in the movie uh, is um, after... Uh, seven minutes with virtually no dialogue when they're trying to hunt Bruce Willis in the building down early on and he's crawling in the air vents. There's, if you look at it, seven minutes, just hardly any lines. Just, just Han says, what are you doing? And he turns the radio off and he says, no one kills him but me. That, there's virtually no dialogue. After that long suspenseful sequence, Bruce is in the tunnel in the vent and he lights a cigarette lighter and says, come out to the coast, we'll have a great time. You remember that line? Yeah, yeah. All right, the audience <laughs> roars because it releases the tension. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of humor that, you know, is in the movie, uh, in, in, that I put in my movies. And uh, it's, I put it more, as much as possible. There was an issue on uh, 48 Hours. Uh, Water Hill did not like the movie being funny at all. At all. Mm-hmm. It, it just, if you look at Water Hill's entire career, There is no other movie he made that is funny, Mm -hmm. including his attempt to do the sequel. Interestingly enough, I was not invited back for the sequel Mm. of 48 Hours. And the 48 Hours sequel is just the first movie all over again. Mm. It's exactly the same movie all over again, really, Mm. even with the brother of the bad guy. Uh, So, But Joel Silver would be on the set, also on Commando, the director of Commando, and now says, I always viewed this as a comedy. He fought the comedy all the way through, kept trying Mm. to take it out. I'm making this because he had come out of low budget movies. This was a serious picture with a big star. And Joel Silver, uh, to his credit, would say, shoot all the comedy, shoot as much comedy as you want. You can always take it out. We have mm-hmm. to, when we show the movie to the audience, if it's not working, if they're groaning and not laughing, we can take it out. We can't put it back in. So that's always been my model and the way I've approached things. Mm-hmm. I sometimes get the feeling that you're sort of commenting on the absurdity um, 
of the action? Um, uh, yeah, there is, there is uh, particularly particularly in uh, I've done that a couple times in 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 Commando. Uh, Ray Dawn Chan is a surrogate for the audience. I mm-hmm. mean, she actually says things like, "These guys eat too much red meat." Yeah, you know, or, or <laughs> yeah, this or, is too much or, testosterone. Yeah, she, I was like, are you kidding? She, she's like, she had these reaction shots, uh, and uh, a lot of the action is over the top. Like, there's a point, uh, and again, and I have these conversations. Like, uh, the, the stunt guys uh, 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 in Commando, they're, they're, they, they, what they would do is say, "We want to show you the stunts we're working out." And I would go see, and I'd pull Joel aside. I said, you can't do that in sequence. I said, these poor, these poor guys at the shopping mall, they're like rent-a-cops. You know, you know you can't, Arnold cannot fight them the way he fights the real bad guys. And, and, and you know, and, and you, you can't do that. And so if you look at the way he fights those guys, it's much more comedic. There's even a yeah. moment where, like, ten guys jump on him. And he does like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, of course, it's, it's preposterous. And you can do that with Schwarzenegger. Also, in a, in a regular movie, uh, when the bad guy tries to make a phone call, right, um, the hero pulls the wire out of the wall. Or the villain pulls mm-hmm. the wire out of the wall. But in Commando, Arnold doesn't pull the wire out of the wall. He picks the whole phone book up. The whole phone book <laughs> yeah, up. throws the guy so, around. <laughs> so, you know, for five minutes... Um, a David Ayer, who's a friend of mine, was tr- they were developing a remake of Commando uh, mm-hmm. at uh, Fox, and, and I'm going, the remake of Commando is, is, is a regular movie. Unless you have mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's just the same as any other movie. It, it, mm-hmm. The whole idea got abandoned later on. Because mm-hmm. you just know, there's, we don't have the actors like, we don't have those actors anymore. Now, uh, I think that Bruce Willis in Die Hard uh, really opened the, at that time, you may have heard the story that you know, the movie was offered to everybody. It was offered to first mm-hmm. to, to Stallone, to Schwarzenegger, to Richard Gere, to Jimmy Kahn. Uh, it was written to Burt Reynolds, who had a long relationship with the producer. And mm-hmm. what happened was at that time, you got to remember, it's 1987, uh, when we were putting the movie together, the action heroes were Stallone and Schwarzenegger, and uh, they're all like muscular, physical specimens. And this is, and in this script, the first act, he's trying, all he's doing is hiding from the villains and trying to call the police. So I think in that context, the actor's going, this guy's a coward. But what made the movie work was Bruce being a regular everyman. And I yeah. think that that opened the door for Keanu Reeves to be an action star. Mm-hmm. Or Liam Neeson to be an action star. You know, I mean, Liam's a big guy, but he doesn't look like he goes to the gym. He's just a, he's just a big guy. I, uh, so uh, I think a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the, the pictures we're having now uh, with uh, legitimate actors, even... Um, the the, the uh, born movies again, again mm. uh, he, he's a normal looking person. He's not uh, one of these uh, gym monsters. Uh, so mm. I think that Die Hard is going to open that door for uh, more realistic heroes and uh, more plausible action movies. Mm-hmm. That's true, but also action movies have changed a little bit. I think because when I look at your movies, your action movies, they're intense, but they're also fun. There's always an element of fun in them and. When you look at more recent action pictures, they're very, very serious pictures. Like very, like the heroes are always very broken people, very moody atmosphere yeah. well, and everything. So I, I think you're right, but I think that's because there's been this bifurcation in what called action movie, where you have these superhero movies, right? So to, mm-hmm. to distinguish, well, we're not one of those movies. We have to be serious. In fact, even DC got a little too dark. The the, the DC movies versus the Marvel, and now they're the pendulum's coming back now with uh, Shazam, 
mm-hmm. you know, where they're, they're, they're lightening them up. And Aquaman, they, they lighten them up. But I think that, uh, that the darker uh, action movies we've been getting are because uh, the uh, comedy seems to have gravitated to the uh, superhero um, you know, movies, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, all, you know, they all have the CGI climax. I like, uh, I think that the, the authenticity, uh, it, you know, I think the audience can tell when it's real. An audience can get more emotionally involved with two people who are fighting, you know, down and dirty, as opposed to a CGI Spider-Man climbing a building. They, sort of, they, they can mm-hmm. tell at the end of the day, you know, what's real. Uh, and and uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you saw Independence Day with an audience, there's mm-hmm. like, they blow up the White House, there's explosions, there's spaceships flying, stuff like that. The biggest cheer in the entire movie, until the alien ship blows up at the end, mm-hmm. was when Will Smith punches the alien in the face and says, welcome to Earth. <laughs> yeah. And that's because it's, it wasn't special. It was a puppet, but it wasn't CGI. It was really there. It was, mm-hmm. you know, hand-to-hand, mano-a-mano. And uh, it's more, and they sort of know that that is emotional, as opposed to the CGI spaceships, you know, fighting mm-hmm. each other. By the same, uh, uh, by the same token, um, the um, Mission Impossible movies have a visceral mm-hmm. reality uh, to them. And the more recent Bond movies as well. The um, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Roger Moore uh, 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 the latter Roger Moore movies and the last few movies with uh, Pierce Brosnan had all these effects, mm-hmm. you know they have like the invisible car and like a very unconvincing surfing sequence and stuff, you know like mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the Bond movies now, <laughs> you know they're real they're gritty uh, they're so real and gritty they like killed people in the last two pictures, mm-hmm. I mean, the stunt crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm always wondering when the, the pendulum is going to swing back because I, I know that a lot of people are reacting that way to CGI-heavy material. You know, it always looks nice, but it doesn't feel real. And Yeah, I loved Wonder Woman uh, up until the last 15 minutes where it became the whole CGI. But up to that point, I thought I loved the picture. Mm. And then it became the whole CGI thing again. And Avengers mm. Endgame, you know, again, the whole... And, I mean, there was some really wonderful stuff in that movie with the, the loss of people and the emotion and it was very clever the way they sort of like worked out the plot and the time travel, and it, and then the ending was just this thing. Same thing with Black Panther. I just I thought it was terrific, and then the ending with the CGI rhinoceros and uh, you know and you know, thousands of people on the on the battlefield. Uh, it just it's sort of like I, I find that my interest kind of uh, drops out. And I love I love the whole arena. I I have my comic books when I was a kid to this day, but um, you know somehow. Uh, and the, funnily enough, the comic books rarely do that. Very rarely do you have in the comic book like two pages with a thousand people in them. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually make it more. The, the the villains in the comic books are so close to each other, they're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. When this day ends, doom will rule the world. You know, like then they're talking. You know, they're they're close enough to talk while they fight. Mm. It's true. So, did you have any any new movies uh, in the making? Do you have anything in development right I now? Because it's been a while since. I always have since... these what, The biggest thing that's going on in, in, in my life is uh, that it takes it's harder and harder to get anything started. So, for mm-hmm. example, Commando. Um, Barry Diller, who was the head of Fox at the time, went to a cocktail party and met Arnold Schwarzenegger. He had just taken over Fox. He comes into work the following Monday, 
And he goes to the Larry Gordon, who I had done 40 hours with and I had done television with and done action movies going back to AIP. And he said, I met Arnold Schwarzenegger at this party. He's a funny, charming guy. He's nothing like the roles he's played. If you can make a movie with him for $10 million, I'll green light it immediately. So uh, Larry calls me up and says, listen, because I'd worked in television and uh, he knew I could work fast. We had worked in relationship for a couple of years. And he says, we got to find a picture for Schwarzenegger. I'm sending you four scripts to read. We're reading them all here in the office. These are scripts that have been abandoned here that we all thought we were going to make the studio, but they got didn't work for some reason. Pick the one that's closest to being a Schwarzenegger movie and figure out uh, a reinvention, and we're going to go pitch it to Schwarzenegger. So everybody agreed on this one script called Commando, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, was problematic for a couple of reasons. First off, it's his wife and daughter who are kidnapped. And they're not kidnapped till page 48, the halfway point mm-hmm. of the movie. The character is an ex-Mossad agent. So Arnold is stretching as an actor. I think Arnold playing an, uh, an Israeli is a problematic stretch. <laughs> uh, and also Arnold in a romantic thing with the wife. All these romantic mm-hmm. scenes at the beginning of the movie. Uh, it, he was, we knew he wasn't comfortable with that. So I came up with a reinvention of this idea which had its roots in the idea, but was totally, for example, in this script, whoever wrote the script did not live in, you know, was uh, either must have been from New York State and not California uh, because he couldn't get guns. So um, it, there's a scene when, when he realized he has to rescue his daughter, the character in the original uh, Commando script goes into the supermarket and does what Reese does in Terminator, gets all the supermarket mm-hmm. ingredients to make homemade weapons. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, to California, you just go into a, just break into an army, <laughs> break into a, in a store, you know. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so uh, I go into the studio, and I say, here's what I've got, that, and I, and I tell, all right, we're going to see Arnold today. What, what, right now, yes. But I, I, I haven't even put this down. I've got, I got three by three by five car. You can do it, Steve, because in television, you do this, you know, every 10 mm-hmm. days you do this. So I'm driving across town with uh, Joel Silver, the producer, um, and I'm still in my head. Think, we go over there. I tell Arnold the story. Uh, and at one point I say, and then you say, you're a nice guy, Sully. I think I'm going to kill you last. And he, he goes, <laughs> I, I go, I do all the greats, Arnold. I, I, I do Cary Grant for you. All right, so he said, he said, I like this picture. I'm not a robot from the future, like caveman from the past. I'm a man from now. I'm having a family and I'm paying clothes, I do this thing. <laughs> so now we get in the car and this is in 19, this is like 1985. Um, so there's the car phone is really like a, like a radio telephone. And the only way you make a call is it's the same service for the Marine operator. So you turn the phone on and they say, San Pedro Marine operator, are you sinking? I says, no, no, we're in a car. We're not in the boat. Can you patch me through to this number? So I call back and said, Arnold's in. We'll be ready for you. So I go, what does that mean? Go back to Larry Gordon's office. He has the head of physical production there and a stenographer. And he says, tell us what you told Arnold, but break it down for production. And this is what we would do in television. So I say, okay, the opening scene is several mysterious murders. Uh Could Could be real world could be backlot, could be backlot, could be practical. Four pages. 
Now we have title sequence, maybe three pages, Arnold and his daughter, you know, at the petting zoo, ice cream parlor, probably practical. All right. General Kirby comes. It's same. It's, it's same location, <coughs> practical location, helicopter, stunts, car crash. They warn him, chase, but about, you know, so I do the whole thing. So when I tell the same story I told Arnold, but with some technical beats, Larry says to the stenographer, how many pages is that? She goes, 105 pages. Because I said, this is probably two pages, right? He says, fine. He says, um, so he turns, he says, get that typed up. Uh, and, and he says to the head of production, we'll get that to you later. He says, I've already got it. Meaning the sets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eve, start writing. If you change the sets, call him. Right? So he knows he has to there. And mm-hmm. this decision was made by one guy. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you look at that movie, it says produced by, there's like two names. Mm-hmm. Right? The typical movie you see today will literally have a dozen producers listed mm. and sometimes yeah. 20 now the truth is that some of those producers just brought in money mm-hmm. some of them are the managers of the stars and get to have their name on the movie because they brought this i got the star to show up mm-hmm. and there's <laughs> that movie where die hard says 20th century fox presents right now mm-hmm. say 20th century fox in conjunction with canal blue in conjunction mm-hmm. with like like film group and funf and, and the Shaw Brothers. So yeah, they have like is, five or six companies. Yeah, yeah, and so what happens is you have to get all these people to agree to make the movie mm-hmm. in the first place. And also what happens, it contributes to some very bad movies because if you have situations where um, there's a difficulty on the movie. Uh, the star is going through a rough patch with his wife or the director is back on drugs. Hmm. You know, or, or some kind of situation like that, and then you go, somebody's going to deal with this. You know, so uh, you know, so we'll go. So like you and I are doing, you, you and I are doing a picture. I say, Christian, you you got to go talk to Julia Roberts and tell her to stop drinking. I'm making that up, Julia. I never heard Julia Roberts. I'm, please, <laughs> this is going to be on the air. I don't mean that. Okay, Julia. <laughs> okay. No, Julia Roberts. I never. No, I've always said Tom Hanks. You got to tell Tom Hanks, right, to stop getting violently drunk. Now you know I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you go, and you're saying to yourself, from your studio, well, I already have a deal to make a picture with Tom Hanks when he finishes this one. I don't want to mm. get in a fight with him. And they go, Steve, you tell Tom Hanks. He's got to stop drinking. And I'm going, uh, yeah, but I, he's reading another script of mine right now. So everybody, like, who will bell the cat? This is what happened mm. with Hudson Hawk. Uh, when it began to spiral out of tr- control, nobody was willing to... Uh, go there and shape the whole picture back together because mm-hmm. of the high talent involved. Nobody wanted to alienate the talent. It was so ridiculous that I'm sitting here in California. I get a phone call from TriStar Pictures. It says, we want you to go to Rome. Try and get the picture back on track. I go, <laughs> me? That's not my job. You know? Uh, so um, I get there, and, and as I walk into the studio, Joel Silver stops me and says, this is not your job or my job. The studio has got to do this. But they never did. Mm. So mm. We, the two of us were there watching the picture sort of like unravel uh, around us as depicted in 
the book by Richard D. Grant, which you you, mm-hmm. you can get the yeah, we'll have to uh, get the whole story one. in greater detail than I could ever I could ever, ever give it to you. <laughs> so uh, that's so that that's the problem today. So I have uh, several pictures that are sort of crawling forward that almost got made two or three times. I uh, just had a meeting uh, uh, last week about one of them, uh, and uh, I have this one pro- one project I have that has almost gotten made five times. And uh, I get paid again each time, you know, which is nice. But I'd rather, much rather like <laughs> see the movie get made. Uh, yeah, I had a, I had a meeting the other day about uh, doing a sequel to um, uh, a movie I never made, but I'm friendly with the star, uh, to, uh, Fort Fairlane. Uh, mm-hmm. Doing a long, a long uh, overdue sequel to Fort Fairlane. And uh, if I do it, I think it would be less goofy, because the original mm-hmm. source material, uh, the character is is um, is uh, a more realistic detective. It's it's mm-hmm. a wacky you know rock and roll world, but uh, it, it was a uh, it, it, not as uh, not as silly as it became. I think there's a there's a danger. People try and do what I think I've been able to do successfully is to blend the humor and the suspense and the drama. But uh, mm-hmm. Hudson Hawk is a good example. Uh, the thing that poisoned Hudson Hawk, which was not my fault, which was all the villains became too goofy. Mm-hmm. They're utterly silly. They're all acting over hammy. The assassins are all cartoon characters. Uh, you know, uh, there's an assassin who has the cards. I'm going to kill you right now and stuff like that. Now, my first mm-hmm. day after that script, we were going to have um, uh, Joss Auckland, who's the uh, British actor who was the villain in mm-hmm. The Weapon 2. He was going to be the original villain of Hudson Hawk. After oh, okay. the first draft in, uh, Michael uh, Lehman said, you know what, let's go for a woman. And we wanted to get Audrey Hepburn. And I made it a woman. By the time, no, okay. no, really, they were talking about getting Audrey Hepburn or, or Lauren Bacall, someone of that elk. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, it's, I'm just saying, they were talking, you know, fresh ideas. Um, yeah. So by the time the picture got, went on, they said, well, instead of a man, instead of a woman, let's have a couple. But they became complete cartoon characters. And that's a mistake that Disney would never make. Even in a Disney movie, like the cartoon Aladdin, right? There's talking mm-hmm. animals in a Disney movie, right? The villains are completely deadly serious. If you mm. like the Lion King, Scar is a scary villain. Aladdin, Absolutely. Aladdin has the parrot, and the parrot says, uh, Jafar, uh, Aladdin's one to us. We got to get out of there. He puts, Shut up, you silly chicken. Soon all Arabia will be under my control. So, like, the villain is straight. Mm. You know, so Disney knows that. Hudson Hawk didn't know that. So, there's an old saying, Hitchcock used to say it. The greater the villain, the greater the hero. Or the more mm. idiotic the villain, the more idiotic the hero is. Because any, you know, what does it take to over? What? Where is the triumph in overpowering an idiot? Mm. You know. And so the whole movie, you know, sinks. So there's a lot of things I can say about Hudson Hawk. I don't have to say them because Richard E. Grant says them. But the one thing <laughs> Dan doesn't say because he's not looking at it outside in; he's looking at it inside out. Is mm-hmm. that he himself? His role contributed to the destruction of the movie. He's mm. not aware of that because he's looking, you know, out. Mm. He, I see. He, yeah, he's looking out for it. Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a kind of fascination for for Hudson Hawk. No, I know. I, have, a lot uh, of I mean, it's love a, it. You know, because uh, um, it, it deconstructs. Yeah, you know, it, 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 I try to do that. I had a picture I wanted to deconstruct all of the uh, uh, tropes of an action movie. Uh, which was uh, knockoff, the picture I did in Hong Kong with uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Choi Hark or Hark Choi, depending on how you 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 you, you yeah. style it uh, in the UK. And then this got undermined because um, 
right before we started was we was the the handover, and the producers were very nervous that they would that that after the handover they would be in the spotlight of Chinese censors. So they had to reinvent mm -hmm. the whole movie where the villains couldn't be Chinese, and there were all all of these decisions that were made in the movie after I wrote it that turned out to be totally unnecessary because mm -hmm. there, there's political crackdowns going on right now, but there has been no uh, central Chinese censorship of the Hong Kong movies. So the, so mm -hmm. the original intention that it was going to be uh, a, 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 a meta parody of these kind of movies got lost, and it became more of a typical um, action mm -hmm. movie. But my idea of that yeah. movie was that these guys, after the Cold War, that these spies their cover operation had sort of gotten forgotten and now they were really in the garment business. You know, mm -hmm. they had like, they had totally forgotten the whole, <laughs> that their original thing. And that when weird stuff starts happening to them, they're convinced it's the mob trying to take over their garment factory, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so it's almost like <laughs> about an hour into the movie, you discover they're actually used to CIA agents. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, it, it got kind of muddled, but that was an attempt to, uh, do that. I have another script of mine that's almost gotten made several times, um, and um, I'm having conversations with it about it now. It's one of my favorite unshot scripts, which is um, about. It starts out. It's like. It seems like you're in one of these really bad action movies. You know, like like the ones that are. It's it's like this this utterly cliche scene, you know, um, and then the the movie stops, and you pull out, and this woman says, "That's about all I can stand of this." The fifth version and the worst, and, and so it's a film critic, and she tears this mm -hmm. movie a new asshole. And then you cut to the studio where the star of the movie is making now the seventh movie in the sequel, and he's watching <laughs> the review, and he gets upset, and they say, ah, come on, don't worry. Now they go out and film the current movie, which is just as stupid as that movie. Anyway, <laughs> uh, before the movie, as it unfolds, is he gets accused of murder, and the only person mm -hmm. who can clear him is this film critic he hates. So before mm -hmm. the movie is over, they're handcuffed to each other, and they have to cooperate. <laughs> so it's so, and it, it, a lot of it is. Have you ever seen the movie movie um, with Tim Robbins about the, the the filmmaker? It was called. Um, it had a name like the Studio or something, you know. Oh, uh, the player. The player, right? So this is like the yeah. player, but yeah, I've seen it's it. an action adventure. The player, where it's very much mm -hmm. about making movies, but uh, the two of them get caught. They 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 get caught in this. You know, and, and, and it becomes like one of these big conspiracies. And she, mm -hmm. she says, I, this can't be happening. This guy, I, I can't be in one of these. What's next? Orange jumpsuits? Mm -hmm. And then there's orange jumpsuits, you know. <laughs> so she says to them, as, to be, as she's being kidnapped, he says, do, do you have a health plan? I mean, how do you get hired? I mean, you know, how do you get jobs like this? So, so she's sort of like Ray, Ray Dawn Sean in, in, the, uh, in the whole thing. So uh, mm -hmm. I'll get that made one way or the other. Yeah, well, I hope that it'll get made. Yeah, um, very much like to see that. You, you like those odd pairings of, of characters? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and you know, I'm my own yeah. worst enemy. In other words, I could have made like five copies of Forty Eight Hours. I could have made ten copies of Die Hard. But I'm always trying to like, you know, stretch a little bit. So my favorite scripts are the ones that haven't been shot. You know, mm -hmm. like I have, and so for what it's worth, because of my movies made a lot of money, I've been able to convince studios to like, to like at least, you know entertain the idea of making like uh, things you would not expect from me. Like I've got a couple of historical romances. Like if it was a book mm -hmm. cover, there'd be a pirate and a girl 
like in an embrace, you know. Um, uh, I have a, a, a Robert Louis Stevenson uh, property that almost got made twice. Uh, mm-hmm. Was actually uh, made as a German movie called uh, um, uh, Love, Life, and the Devil. It's a 1930s mm-hmm. movie. Uh, the, Bridget Hornet had a hit song out of it. Mm-hmm. You know the movie on uh, Todd Teifel and it's set in Hawaii. Anyway, but the the, the the German movie has Germans playing Hawaiians. It's like you know not exactly. <laughs> uh, so I've actually I've almost got that's that has come close twice now. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a favorite of mine, and that's like a period mm-hmm. picture of Hawaii in 1890 with a non-white cast. You know, mm-hmm. so like you know, but I got you know, like so. Uh, that's a that's a harder to push. Uh, it almost happened to Disney, and then I noticed a couple of years later, Disney made mo- mo- the uh, the movie with the cartoon with the uh, Hawaiian girl. So I, mm-hmm. I wonder if I put Hawaii in their minds when I was in there earlier. <laughs> yeah, but still, I imagine it's very frustrating to keep you know pushing for these projects to come through, and then, yeah. like you say, you have one that got made almost. Yeah. Well, Ralph McQuarrie just, well, five times. just uh, Ralph McQuarrie's on Twitter, and the other day someone said, hey, "What is your favorite? What's your favorite movie of all your movies? Which are your favorite mm-hmm. movies?" And he says, "The ones I haven't got, uh, the ones I haven't gotten to get made yet. Mm-hmm. They're sitting here on my shelf, and I have exactly the uh, uh, the same thought." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess having that kind of passion for the the unmade project helps to you know keep yeah, yeah, yeah. pushing for them and. Did you want to talk about, since your focus is video games, did you want to talk about uh, Tomb Raider? Yeah, Tomb Raider, that's on my list too. Um, But I don't know how much of that, like, um, you have a story credit on that one, but not a screenplay Uh, credit. What's funny about that, here's what's happened on that was, um, I get a call from Larry Gordon, who is the producer I've worked with many, many times. And this is, uh, let me take you back to the turn of the century. This is uh, in uh, 19, (laughs) uh, I guess, 1999. He says, "Listen, um, do you know um, uh, do you know the the, the game uh, Tomb Raider?" And I go, "Yeah, it's a video game. I, you know, my 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 son plays it. I've played it a couple times. I'm very familiar with it." He says, "Well, I've got the rights to make this movie, and I've had been in development for two years now. I've got four scripts. None of them work, and uh, my rights to the video game expire." Um, if I'm not in pre-production in the next uh, uh, in the next three months or whatever it was, mm-hmm. three or four months, I got to be in pre-production. He gave me a date, uh, so um, and I'm also sort of tapped out on the budget. So I think it's probably going to be a page one rewrite or even a whole new script. But I, I got to call it a rewrite. If you make it like the back, you work it up. Now I had done so much work for Larry. I said, "Fine, it's all it's all good. You know, whatever." So we're going to call this like just a simple rewrite, but it's a complete overhaul, and we'll 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 sort it out in the back end. So uh, they gave me the four scripts to, to read. Um, none of them really worked uh, for various reasons. So I basically wrote an entire new movie, and in in what I wrote, basically, I said, "Okay, this is." It's supposed to be a very British thing. I'm going to do Agatha Christie. I'm going to do the Murder on the Orient Express. It turns out everybody did it. And that's exactly what they did in the movie um, uh, Hot Fuzz. If you remember, mm-hmm. Hot Fuzz at the end turns out to be an Agatha Christie movie 
where everybody in town mm -hmm. is in. So that's what I did. Uh, so I turned the script in, and it was, what's funny is when I go in my early meetings about it, I remember at that time, in 1999, some of the studio executives still had not had their heads around a video game. So they knew that the, they had rejected four scripts. And now I had, they had all read my, like, seven-page treatment for the movie. So this one executive says, uh, I know we're running out of time here, but I still think this is the wrong plot. Why? This movie has to be about her trying to find a previous expedition that got lost. So I don't think it has to be about... Well, and believe me, what I had, actually, believe it or not, in my mind, is I had her idea wanted to return stuff to where it had been taken, you know, like the Elgin Marbles. So talk about revisionist. I had she, they invite her to cut the ribbon at the, at the wing of the museum, and she says that now that my, you know, my father, my late father, I intend to return things to be in the museums of the indigenous nations, and they, you know, which is a, a controversial thing. And so I put it in the movie, the opposite of what you expect of tomb raiding, mm -hmm. tomb returning. That was my idea. Uh, so she says, yeah. so, uh, no, it can't be that. She wants to take stuff. It has to be she's looking for the lost expedition. So I go, why? And they say, well, because every time in the video game, they show me the videotape of the game, you know, like in the videotape of the game, every time she gets to a new, a new set, a new room, and she turns to her assistant, oh, a new level, she finds food and ammunition and first aid kits. So how oh. could food, ammunition, and first aid kits be everywhere she goes unless she's following a previous expedition? <laughs> this is really sad. And so I go, so I start to go, are you, are you kidding me? Don't you? And, and, and I, I said, and Larry Gordon literally kicked me under the table. <laughs> right? So then they go, also, I, I notice, and then she, the same woman says, I notice in your treatment you never mentioned that she reloads. And I noticed from my son, when he plays the game, that there's always reloading. So make sure that mm -hmm. you show her reloading her gun. I go, okay, yeah, I never would have thought of that, you know. Uh, so anyway, um, I turned the script in, and um, I remember this today because John Goldwyn, who was uh, you know, a, a second or third generation executive at, in Hollywood, he was the head of production. At the, uh, he was the head of production number two guy under Sherry Lansing. And so the front page of Variety, he says, we've been trying to get this, get this made for years, and Steve D'Souza has given us a franchise. And it says they've hired a director named Stephen Herrick. Okay? So the two things happen. The first thing that happens, I get a phone call from Joel Silver th that day. He's furious at me because he sees I'm working for Larry Gordon, and they had broken up recently. How can you do that? I was always in your corner. You know, so I, so I oh, that's great. Anyway, as it turns out, this director, like, leaves the project. And the studio uh, looks around, and they have a deal with Simon West already for mm -hmm. a movie that fell apart. So they put Simon West on the picture. So Simon West does what a lot of these directors do. He fancies himself a writer. He goes back into all the previous scripts, and he assembles this Frankenstein script. Mm -hmm. But I'm very good at conceiving action sequences, right? 
So the movie that results has this incomprehensible plot, which is the Frankenstein plot of the four previous scripts and all of my action sequences. Every action sequence in the first Tomb Raider movie mm-hmm. is from my script. When, because he wanted to get screen credit, there was an automatic arbitration. The Writers Guild decides credits. No, the studios do not. The Writers Guild looks at the material. And, uh, you know, I just think that maybe my fellow writers, whoever was on that committee, you know, they're looking at the words too much and didn't grasp the action sequences. So the first movie, my name is not on it. Mm-hmm. What happens is the movie opened, and in the movie, you know, it had a big opening and then it nosedived. The, the, the reviews, even the reviews from fanboys were brutal. Mm-hmm. If you notice at the time, even the fans of the game, they hated, hated it. But Monday they said, we got to make a sequel right away. And somebody at Paramount said, you know, the Steve D'Souza script wasn't bad. Let's shoot that now. So now they take my original script out and they put that. But now as they're doing that one, they go, well, we can't do these action sequences. We we did them all. So the plot of the second movie Mm -hmm. reflects my plot on the first movie. So I was like I was like on a safari in South Africa and I happened to see online some production stills of the Tomb Raider sequel and all the production stills I see are from my first script. So when I get back home, I call up the Writers Guild and I said, listen, this is, you know, I could be totally delusional here, but I believe that my script, which you already have in your files from the arbitration last time, is in the mix for the sequel. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, that's, you know, we'll check that out because that's what they do. So they, they, so they do, and they have a panel of three people that says unanimously, this script is the first script in the food chain of three right, the usual committee of writers. Mm-hmm. So my name's on the second movie because it's got the scraps left over from my first, from the first movie. And in my opinion, both movies are kind of a mess. The problem with the set, the problem with the first movie is it, it's like completely random. It's like this guy took took uh, five scripts, the four before me, mine, and the script he wrote, and threw them down the steps and picked up the pieces random. <laughs> I'm friendly with one of the subsequent writers who pointed out that there's no tomb raiding in the movie until the last ten mm-hmm. pages, and, and and Simon West said, "Yes, exactly. That's what I'm going." So I go. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, the second movie is utterly predictable uh, mm-hmm. at every step of the way. It's almost like every scene, she says, we need a submarine. And now there's a submarine. How do we get there? <laughs> Helicopters. So, like, you, it, it's all, uh, it's all telling, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Where um, uh, the best kind of uh, construction for an action movie is to sort of plant the seeds of what is going to happen, but have them sprout in a way the audience can't imagine. So mm-hmm. and it's sometimes very subtle. So like in uh, in Die Hard 2, which you like better than the second one, okay? There's a scene where Bruce is trapped in the plane and surrounded. Mm-hmm. And I remember pitching this to Bruce to Bruce and to Joel Silver and to Rennie Harlan. And they lock him in the airplane and they throw all their hand grenades into the plane. And they go down and he says, You have to wait for the pages. How does he get out of that? Mm-hmm. Now if you look at that again, you have the Blu-ray? Or DVD of the movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Look at I that have sequence. Blu-ray. Yeah. 
And I want you to see how all departments work together, including a director mm -hmm. and a cinematographer. One of the things that's going on in that movie is the entire color scheme of that interior of that plane, including what everybody is wearing, tilts towards, um, it was, it, what is it, uh, um, blue-green on your color dial. Mm -hmm. You have cyan, magenta, and yellow. What are the three colors in your printer? So it's, it's mm -hmm. all in the blue-green direction. The only thing that is not in the blue-green direction, but it's in almost, there's only two things that are in the shot. One is the axe. Look at mm -hmm. the movie. He's talking to the bad guys. You, you sort of notice the red axe. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's red is the handle of the ejection seat. Mm -hmm. So subconsciously, you notice the red. So when the fire axe traps him in there, you go, it sort of like alerts you to that color. And all of the subsequent scenes inside the plane, where they throw the grenades in and Bruce, the handle is visible in all the shots. Sometimes it's not mm -hmm. a focus, but there's always the red. So the moment when he jumps in the seat and pulls the handle, everybody in the audience has the completely false impression, oh, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> they really did it, but they're predisposed to feel. Yeah. Real, and that's why they applaud crazy. I would have thought of that if I was Bruce Willis. It's the same <laughs> phenomenon that happens when you go to, to like um, Steely Dan coming around for their 10th farewell tour. And mm -hmm. they play two <laughs> notes of a song, the audience cheers. They're not applauding them. They're applauding themselves for recognizing that song and only off the first two or three notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a way to have the audience anticipate with excitement what's going to happen next without spilling the beans and telegraphing, mm -hmm. as we used to say. I don't know if that has any meaning anymore, telegraphing it. Speaking of movies, and since I'm talking to you and you're in Germany, in January, I went to uh, Ber to uh, Berlin, and I had a meeting at Studio Babelsberg about a, a television mm -hmm. project that I'm hoping to do with a friend of mine who's an up-and-coming German director named Florian Frerichs. I don't know if you know. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, and he said, listen, as long as you're here, I'm shooting a picture. I'd like you to do a cameo in it. I go, well, what do you mean? He says, we know how John Landis uh, always puts in... Um, behind-the-scenes mm -hmm. filmmakers. So, like, I did Beverly Hills Cop 3 with him, and he has several filmmakers mm -hmm. in a scene in a bar. Um, uh, he says, so, all right, okay, well, why do you think I could do it? And he says, well, your assistant in your office says you've done some acting. Uh, <laughs> only on rare occasions, like in Ricochet, at the end of the movie, I'm a reporter, because I was on the set, and suddenly the director says, I want you to put in wardrobe. I don't like the guy playing a reporter. You're his side. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I've done a couple of things on TV shows, both in both occasions where an actor didn't show up, and I played a part. So, yeah. All right, I, I said, all right. And, okay. and, and you played one of the leads in Arnold's Wrecking oh, yes, Company. Yes, okay, yeah, if you want to go back that far. <laughs> all right, so uh, I get to the set. He gives me like a three-page monologue. So anyway, this movie wow. is in the can. It's called Death Sember, and I understand it's been playing in Germany at film festivals. And it's, it's, okay. like, it's basically like ABCs of Death, only it's an advent mm -hmm. calendar. So the titles are, each day is a little mini, and so each little, 20, there's 24 um, 
well, 25 really, I guess, mm -hmm. eight stories that are each horror or genre or something. So the one I'm mm -hmm. in is called Christmas on Fire, and it's a parody of City on Fire, which, of course, has a strong resemblance to Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. So it's a Tarantino yeah. parody, and I'm the ringleader mm -hmm. of a robbery. So uh, you might be able to catch that uh, if you look up December. Uh, mm -hmm. I know it has uh, 25 little mini-movies, and the directors all over the world made them. Most of them are in English. Mm -hmm. The one I shot uh, is in English, and it supposedly takes place in America, but it was shot uh, completely on the Babelsberg lot. So, yeah, Stephen, thanks for all of your stories. And, um, oh, it was so horrible like, to talk about. My, oh, I had to talk about myself for 90 minutes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some people are like, well, you know, what do you want to know? And <laughs> so I see you're a born storyteller, so um, well, it's, I, it's very it, enjoyable it to hear it, you. It is my line of work. And like most writers, <laughs> yeah. I welcome any opportunity to avoid writing, and you've given me one for two hours now. <laughs> I see. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and, and just to, to um, you know, go, go back to Street Fighter and, and just Uh, because we talked about the reviews and I said, well, I don't understand Well, it uh, got such a drubbing critically. Um, I enjoy the movie very much. Um, and I think there, it has a lot to offer. And we're going to talk about that in our podcast. And um, I'll write about that. So I hope that, well, some people will, uh, you know, give it another chance and check it out. Well, like I said, lately I've like seen this re-examination of the movie. And uh, there's, there's been a bunch of things published uh, re-examining it and a return to it. Uh, there was somebody did this whole video essay called Street Fighter, the best bad movie ever made, which I saw, <laughs> okay. which I go, hmm, that seems fake praise. But actually, it wasn't fake praise. It was real praise. And they talked about mm. why it really works and uh, got into a kind of a deep literary dive uh, into uh, uh, camp uh, and mm. uh, a famous uh, seminal essay about what camp was uh, by uh, Susan Sontag. It was written, I guess, in the uh, 70s. And like, mm -hmm. like really a deep, deep dive into the underbelly of literary meaning and stuff and going, to, oh, yeah, sure. That's exactly what I had in mind. Yes. Uh, so, so it's, <laughs> you know, it reminds me of um, it was a review in a magazine called uh, Jump Cut, which I think is still around. It's kind of a kind of a leftist mm -hmm. literary magazine. And they reviewed um, Die Hard and liked it a lot. And they said when the when uh, the villains ask him his name, he says, call me Roy. Because Roy is French for king, and he wants to be the king in the castle of his house, but his feminist wife prevents that. And I go, no, it's called Roy because Bruce Willis and I were talking about our childhood, and we used to watch the Roy Rogers TV show. But no, but I guess I'm wrong, and you're right, because Roy is French and king. <laughs> yeah, sometimes critics My can be like that. My favorite example you know, of this and... is in uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Uh, which was both mm -hmm. a book and a movie. Uh, Hitchcock talks about people sometimes, like he reads what the movie meant, and he goes, where did they get that idea? And Truffaut tells a story about himself, about uh, when he was writing for Cahiers de Cinema, uh, um, he and uh, Jean-Luc Godard both went to interview uh, William Weiler. Mm-hmm. And they say to William Weiler, he's t this is the story is in the Hitchcock Truffaut book. So he says, so mm -hmm. we went and interviewed William Weiler, and we said, you know that moment when Herbert Marshall needs his heart medicine? And he says, Regina, 
get me my medicine. And she just sits in the chair and doesn't get the medicine. And he has to go up, go get the medicine himself. Mm -hmm. And you put the camera right on top of Betty Davis. And she was half in the light. Let me get here. here. She was, she was like half in the light and half in the darkness. Were you trying to show that she was between heaven and hell and good or evil that she couldn't, which way she would go. And, you know, and, 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 and that, and she says, no, Herbert Marshall had a wooden leg from world war one. And I had to put the camera on Betty Davis so that the stunt man could go up the stairs and fall down because Herbert Marshall couldn't get over to the steps quickly enough. You know? So <laughs> it's a perfect example of how people like read all the, yeah. and sometimes it has an utterly ordinary explanation of why you did something. Yeah. You, you probably know the Kurosawa story. Um, I sometimes use that when I do, um, like I sometimes lecture at universities on film, and I always use that example to tell you, well, okay, you can't always assume that people did something for that exact what, reason. I don't know this one. What is uh, the Kurosawa example? Um, I think it is, it's about the Seven Samurai. Yeah. Um, and, and Kurosawa was asked why he did this one particular shot of a landscape that was very beautiful and also, you know, very symbolic and everything. Why did you frame it exactly like this? And Kurosawa said, well, if we had panned to the left, you would have seen the airport. And if we had panned <laughs> yeah. to the right, you would have seen the Sony factory. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> True enough. They made one for Die Hard. They made a coffee table book last year. The big definitive. You have that one? Did you see that book? Uh, no, I haven't oh, seen it. Oh, it's a giant. I didn't know. Uh, what was it called? I have it here somewhere, I think. Wait a minute. You'll notice I did not have it at hand. I'm not doing the Miss Haversham. I didn't have it at hand. Uh, this one here, Die Hard, <laughs> yeah. The Ultimate History. I know this is published. Oh, wow. This, this is, I'm sure there's a German edition because there was a Spanish edition mm -hmm. I saw when I was in Spain. And a Die Hard Definitive History, and it's uh, uh, the ultimate visual history by James, and it's uh, uh, forward by John McTiernan. And McTiernan is very kind to me in his forward. It's really nice. And as to what mm -hmm. we can say about Die Hard and all the sequels and all the quality is, uh, just to show you the book here, wait a minute. The book has storyboards. These are all storyboards mm -hmm. I provide the publishers. That um, has a... Um, the blueprint, in here in the envelope, they have a blueprint of the building. Uh, there was actually mm -hmm. a, um, there's a special on TV on Netflix. I don't know if you get Netflix in uh, Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Okay, they have a special going right now called The Movies That Made Us. They have a one-hour special about Die Hard. And they interviewed mm -hmm. me in this in the same room here, I think. And uh, I showed the blueprint. They gave me a blueprint of the, of the building because it was a real mm -hmm. building. And I used that to work out the stunts and the action. Mm -hmm. So they had a copy of the blueprint here. In the book, well, my point I was going to make wow. is, um, okay, is that this thing is, is huge? Yeah, the book is huge. But what's interesting is this part of the book here is Die Hard one and two. Wow. And this is <laughs> and this is all the others. So even the yeah. even the the people making this book sort of knew what was interesting. <laughs> that only the, yeah, you know, there's not there's really not a lot to say about the other. Yeah, especially number five. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they really jumped yeah, the shark so, with that yeah. one. So, um, uh, well, what, what's interesting, though, is that um, only only the first one and the last one were, like, intended to be, like, a diehard movie. The first mm -hmm. one was based on the book, which was a sequel, as you know, to 
another book. That's why Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. was like, yeah. it's a good bar bet. You know, if you want to win money, you go to a bar and you say, hey, you know that part Bruce Willis played in Die Hard 2, 3, 4, and 5? Who was the first person to play that picture? In what picture? And they'll say, Bruce Willis in Die Hard 1. You say, no, Frank Sinatra in The Detective, and then grab the money quickly and run away before they beat you up. Um, so the second <laughs> movie was based on a book, but it wasn't by the same author. It had nothing to do with Die mm-hmm. Hard. And then the third one was an original movie called called Simon Says that got mm-hmm. turned into a thing. The fourth one was called World War Three, which got abandoned after 9-11 and then got resurrected. And the, only the last mm-hmm. one was written, okay, we'll make this movie about the Die Hard characters. In my humble opinion, only the first two, which you like, are diehard movies because the definition of a diehard movie is it has an Aristotelian unity of time, place, and action. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hero is trapped between a rock and a hard place, being the authorities and the villains, neither of whom want them there, and he's all alone with no help. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the third movie, he's not trapped anywhere, and he, not only mm-hmm. does he have a, a partner, the police are helping him. Mm. In the fourth movie, forget he's not. And the, and the third movie, he's not trapped. He goes all. He goes to Canada at the end of the movie. Mm. The fourth movie, uh, he's all the way up and down the East Coast, from Washington D.C. up to like Boston, I think. And police mm. and the FBI and this and the FBI are helping him. By the mm. fifth movie, the CIA is helping him. And he's not scared of flying anymore. Mm. You know? So, yeah, and he goes to Russia. <laughs> so the first two movies, he's scared of flying, and he's a technophobe. That's all mm. lost later on. He's just become, he's become a generic superhero. Anyway, that's my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, this is, this absolutely. is a great Absolutely, especially with the fifth one. Yeah, I mean, this is a great he, book. He, he survives diving into a pool of radioactive... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I don't he's, know, like, and he's fearless. He's fearless. In the first two yeah. movies... Bruce showed fear. Yeah. You know, I talked to him about that and, you know, about how, to me, the most significant moment, everybody wants to be Bogart and, you know, Bruce as much as any other action star. And I would remark to him when I told, he said, why is the airplane crash came in? He was seeing the script that was being rewritten and he said, we're killing all these people. And I go, yeah, we got to get the vulnerability back. And he still was showing fear. He's, he's terrified when the grenades come in the room. Hmm. And there's a wonderful moment in, um, you can find it online, in The Maltese Falcon, which is the movie that made, you know, really made, cemented mm-hmm. um, uh, Bogart as a star. He has a scene where, I have the Blu-ray here. He has yeah. a scene where he meets the villains for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he says, ah, I like a man who's a straight shooter, Mr. Uh, Mr. Spade. And then at one point he says, all right, if you think uh, you and your, your, your idiot here I've had it with you. It's my way or the highway. The hell with you. Mm. And he walks out of the room. But when he gets outside to the elevator, it's a famous moment, he looks at his hand, and his hand mm. is shaking. And then you realize he was, it was all a show in there. Yeah, me, that's, that's what makes him a great, a great hero, that he was mm. scared, but he did not show it. And mm. uh, I think that's an important kind of vulnerability that Again, I think Bruce's performance in Die Hard opened the door for um, Wahlberg and for um, uh, Keanu Reeves and so many of these mm. more realistic uh, uh, heroes that we've had. If you get this book, if you like Die, if you like Die Hard, this is great. Mm-hmm. I will, yeah. They interviewed everybody. 
Uh, it's a great book. I have no royalties. In yeah, it. excellent. I have no royalties in it. I'm just recommending. Recommend. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for for pointing it out. I, I didn't know that it came out. So, Steve, thanks You're again. You're quite welcome. This uh, has been great. A great awesome. interview, really. By the way, I get interviewed all the time. Great questions. You really pulled a lot of stuff out of me. 